Operation Red Pill. The only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher D. Get ready. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Racism, a color-coded war on everyone. Is modern-day racism just a lingering shadow of our bright colonial past, or is it the result of systematic steps taken to weave oppression into the very fabric of American culture, ultimately playing into a darker hand? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. Christopher Dean. What is up? What's going down, baby? How you been? Been all right. Been all right. How are you doing? You know what, man? I can't call it. It's been a wonderful week. I had a lot of work I had to do. I was tired. Got a chance to do a little relaxation. Had a chance to see a wonderful film. Film I've been waiting 35 years to see. (laughs) All right. Top Gun Maverick. Okay, so you went and see it in the theater, right? I did a few times. I think right. now I'm at five times. Five times? Five, and I don't feel like it's nearly enough. <laughs> I'm surprised it's only five. Right? There was a little, there's this uh, <laughs> this Asian dude. Gotta be careful how I say that. This this Bill Burr conversation <laughs> almost had me use other expletives right? based on his whole little take. But this Asian guy, <laughs> uh, he actually beat me. Worldwide record. I think he's seen it. 45 times. Wow. Has tickets for each time. That's crazy. I'm like, that is nuts. That is absolute dedication. Yeah. I'm not there yet. I've been a little busy, but my heart was there. (laughs) If you had the time. If I had the time and the money, I would probably see it 45 (laughs) easy. Here's the funny thing, though. Every time I watch it, I find something else that I like, something else that really speaks to me. Okay. Like, first time I watched it, it was the first 60 seconds. Like, that was it for me. Yeah. First 60 seconds, I saw how they they re, re-shot, like, the original opening sequence. Uh-huh. They had the title screen. They had the right font. Everything spoke to the original Top Gun. I was like, all right. All right, this director's got it. He's got the feel. Everything. is. I'm feeling like I'm in the danger zone right now. And, like, I got Tony Scott behind the camera. That is important to a diehard fan. Right. That when you when you explained that to me, because the first time that you went, that's what you said. And (laughs) I knew that you were a little uh, skeptical going into it. Right. But when you told me in the first 60 seconds, you were convinced. I was like, he's just way too much of a fanboy. Like like, (laughs) it made me more skeptical of the film. When I told you I was convinced in 60 seconds. Yeah, I was like, that's all it took. Oh, yes. 35 years of anticipation broke down in 60 seconds. Because Top Gun has such an iconic opening. You know, when you start in a... like oh yes i got the syncopated <laughs> drums i got the i got the stars falling from the sky they go along the water i see paramount and then it fades to black and then i get my i get the the title card that shows up where you got to read on march 3rd 1969 the united states navy established an elite school for the top one percent of its pilots its purpose was to teach the lost art of aerial combat 
and to ensure that the handful of men and women who graduated were the best fighter pilots in the world. They succeeded. Today, the Navy calls it Fighter Weapons School. But the Flyers, they call it Top Gun. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is it. I'm in a phase out of that. I got my aircraft on aircraft carrier and I'm looking at the color gradient that's on there. And I'm like, all of this speaks to Tony Scott because he used like an orange filter on there. So he okay. kind of has that iconic like sunset feel. Right. I see that I hear the low whine of the jet and just I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm hearing my Top Gun chords hitting. I'm like, oh, OK, this is all the elements. <laughs> and then he cuts like it, it was a modern day almost shot. It wasn't quite shot for shot of the original. Okay. But it was a modern day take because you had a completely different set of aircraft. Instead of having like Corsairs and F-14s on the flight deck, you had F-18s and F-35. And F-35 actually makes an appearance right in this part of the film. Okay. Which is a unique nod because I think they just had a couple squadrons that have gone active duty recently. Like that's a very, very new jet for the Navy. Okay. So I'm like, you, you gave a nice little nod to that and then poof, we take off. But how we take off? It's all speaking back, arcing back to the original sequence. Okay. Danger Zone kicks in. I was waiting to see. I got my I got my little people with the uh, field nozzles and all. I got my shooters up there. The shooters are the guys that are in yellow. Okay. They actually launched responsible for launching aircraft. They launch them off, and I'm like, yes, all oh, the Danger Zone. It's dope. <laughs> Took 60 seconds. I was hooked. Yeah, and I, I will say, though, because I went to go see it with my wife, and when you told me about it, I was skeptical. When I had the opportunity to see it for myself, I'm not even sure it took the full 60 seconds. <laughs> and I was, I was like, okay, I get it. I get it now. You get it real quick? Yep. Well, what was funny is that they actually talked with the director. He said one of the things that he knew he had to do is it has to open in a way that says, yes, this is a Top Gun film, and yes, we're going to handle it appropriately. We know what we're doing. And I'm like, you did that. Because <laughs> I, I really didn't think he could do it. The original director who was supposed to, who shot the original uh -huh. was supposed to come back and do the sequel, committed suicide. Oh. And when he did that, I was, I was, I should be sad for the family. I was pissed as a fan. I was like, you couldn't do that after you did Top Gun? You got Top Gun tears rolling down. <laughs> I, I did. I was like, nobody else could shoot this the way you did. Huh. Like, the way he shot that originally. It was very, very professional. Like you can put still, you can take still images of Top Gun and they are wonderful pictures. Okay. Like it's framed so beautifully. You can see this 30 years later, you can see someone take a clip from Top Gun, put it in a film and you automatically know that's Top Gun. It's so iconically shot. Right. That's impressive work. Right. I mean, totally. Ridley Scott, his brother is, uh, or Tony Scott is the one who did it. His brother's Ridley Scott. Okay. The one that did uh, Aliens and some other, other movie franchises that he's well known for. Okay. But yeah, they're brothers. He's, uh, he has a very unique eye, Tony Scott. All right. Because he's done like Taken of Palin 112, Enemy of the State. No, Enemy of the State, I think was him too. Um, I'm trying to think of some of his more iconic films One, days of thunder 112 wasn't it one two three taking of palin one two three yeah yeah okay uh unstoppable the one with um denzel washington and chris pine where they're on the train okay 
I don't think I saw that one. Oh, you should do yourself a service and go watch it. I should have because it happens in Ohio, right? Um, I think so. I think the actual story took place in Ohio, but I think for their thing, it's like in Pennsylvania. Okay. But I think the actual one did take place in Ohio. Gotcha. But either way, great, great director with a really good eye. So for Joe Krasinski to be able to come on board and actually live up to that and exceed it, that's a tall order. Yeah. But Top Gun is a touchy subject for me. It's like I've got a love-hate relationship with it. Okay. As much as I find the, the original film so in, so enduring, right? All right. There's a scene in it that I absolutely hate. Really? I, I do. I can't stand it every time. And, and I'm torn every time I see it. This is news to me because I I thought like <laughs> the whole time I've known you, Top Gun can do no wrong. No wrong whatsoever, right? right. No, 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 it does wrong. Huh. Uh, it's the scene after Goose has died and Maverick's back on the flight line. He won't engage because he still has got PTSD and he still feels guilty. Right. Okay. And he's he's got done with his first hop that he had to take post uh, post Goose's death and being cleared to, to go fly again. And as he's walking on the flight line, his Rio at the time is saying, hey, man, we could have had him. We could have had him, man. And Maverick turns around and he grabs him. And he's like, I will fire when I ain't good and ready. You got that? And he just lets him go. Uh-huh. And the man just stands there, just shaking, just looking like a punk. And what makes me so angry is it's the only black guy in the film. And that's how he's treated in the film? Exactly. He didn't say nothing. He didn't say, uh, first rule of business, Maverick, don't ever touch me like that again. Second rule of business, don't ever touch me like that again. <laughs> Like, do you remember in Pacific Rim when uh, Idris Elba's character gets gets touched by uh, I want to call him Jax Teller, but it's Charles Hunnam, Charlie Hunnam. Uh huh. When he he touches him, and Idris Elba says, first off, don't ever touch me like that again. Secondly, don't ever touch me like that again." <laughs> I was like, "Bravo, Mr. Negro! That's right. exactly how you are supposed to handle that situation. Maintain a." positive sense of alpha male and let the people know where they're not supposed to <laughs> breach that whole prior to you. You understand what I'm saying? That is beautiful. That is not what they did in the eighties. <laughs> not to mention the fact that the man's call sign in Top Gun who got snatched up by Maverick, uh -huh. his name was Sundown. I guess the most racist name you could give a character. How is that a racist name? He's black and his name is Sundown. You might as well call him Nightshade. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? You couldn't come up with no other name. The white guy in the movie, we get Maverick, uh. Iceman, <laughs> Cougar, Merlin, Viper, Jester, black nigga. <laughs> That's essentially what his name was. I'm like, okay, listen, I'm starting to feel like Top Gun's a bit racist. <laughs> Not only were there was there only one black guy in the film, right? Uh-huh. His name is Sundown, and he gets stashed up by the main character and isn't even able to defend himself at all. Well, it's not that he's not able to. He just didn't. No, nah, he just stood there looking like a tree shaking back back and forth in the wind. I got a problem with that. Okay. Now, you fast forward to Top Gun Maverick, and that little nuance gets corrected. Okay. Which I thought was interesting because they introduce another character, another man of color, whose okay. name is Warlock. Okay. Now, Warlock is a two-star. Okay. Which means he ranks pretty high. He'd be considered a, a, a rear admiral. All right? Okay. 
Uh, yeah, he'd be considered a rear admiral. And he's higher ranked than Maverick, apparently knows Maverick, but he's more distinguished. Okay. And he's got a cool call sign. Man's name is Warlock. Yeah, that's not bad. I'm like, all right, I'm liking that. But this takes me to what I appreciated when I told you that every time I watched it, I found different things I appreciated. Uh-huh. It takes me to the different thing that I appreciated about Maverick. I'm watching Warlock, actually, in one of the scenes. I think the actor's name is Charles Parnell. And it's at the, the scene where, if you guys haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, try not to give any spoilers. Um, nothing really important to the plot. But Maverick's walking in to be introduced for the first time to these people that he's supposed to lead, right? Okay. And Charles Parnell, Warlock, is given this wonderful introduction, you know. He has, the, the man we're supposed to introduce you to has got more flight time and more experience than anybody else. He's got the things he can teach you can basically save your life. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you Pete Mitchell, call sign, Maverick. And I was like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling that. I like the way you said it. All right. But I was telling one of my friends, I said, one of the things I actually found that I appreciate the more the film went on and actually saw that particular actor was something very unique. Okay. And it happened to be his skin. Now, that sounds weird. A little right? bit. It, it sounds weird, but. Because we got to know to what degree you're fascinated by this dude's skin. It was the way the camera <laughs> presented it. He had rich chocolate skin. And it, 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 it was color balanced right, which is another thing, because not, not everything is color balanced towards people of, you know, darker skin. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't overexposed. He wasn't underexposed. You could really appreciate the melanin value of his skin. Okay. And I was telling someone, I said, for the first time, like I was actually kind of proud to see someone who looks like me as far as skin tone complexion. Okay. That doesn't always happen when I see people of, uh, you know, of color represented on screen. Interesting. And it kind of raised up this whole hidden, I don't want to say hidden, but buried memory for me that deals with aviation and racism. Okay. Now I remember being in high school and uh, the air force as well as some of the other armed services would come around and do recruiting. Right. Okay. And I remember getting a brochure and taking it with me to work. And I was talking with my boss and I told him that I didn't like what I saw in the brochure. And he said, what do you mean? So I actually had it with me. I showed it to him and he said, what's wrong with the brochure? I said, I don't see anybody who's black in the brochure. Like yeah. no one. And what I do see is I see a fighter pilot on the front of the brochure and it's a white male. Okay. Now, from what I know about the the status symbol of a fighter pilot, when you go through flight school, not everybody's is allowed to get jets. You know, you don't always get fighters. Okay. Pretty much the top one percent of the class gets allocated to fighters. Gotcha. Everybody else will get maybe transport, cargo, other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe trainers, what have you. So your fighter, fighter pilots are considered the best of the best. Right. So when you have a guy who's portraying the best of the best and he's a white male, it carries an embedded message with it. That anyone that's not a white male doesn't stand a chance? Or the best of the best is a white male. Oh, okay. I gotcha. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Even if I open up the pamphlet and maybe there's another picture of maybe a black female or something like that. Throughout the whole thing, none of that. Now, the, the Air Force has kind of cleaned up their act, 
henceforth. I mean, that was back in the nineties. I'm dating myself. Actually, I think it was the nineties. Yeah, nineties or early two thousand, somewhere around there. Okay, because I graduated in one. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they've since been become more sensitive to that sort of imaging. Okay, but I'm like, that's not accidental. You're pay, you pay a company to do your marketing. You're trying to communicate your message. That's not an accidental message. Okay. This does, this does, cause we've talked about this a little bit before mm -hmm. and I'm not completely disagreeing with you. You're not completely convinced either. Well, it's not that I'm not convinced, but I think just the, the, the nature of majority minority needs to be taken into consideration. Not, not that it would change the messaging, but I think that there is a level of, uh, what do I want to say? I don't know, man, but I got my dukes up, so <laughs> why don't you use your words carefully, son? Okay, so it has me thinking if <laughs> schools, so my, my mom plays piano for uh, the choirs for high schools. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> when you're going up against a larger school, because they have a greater pool of people to pull from, they they tend to be a little bit more difficult to contend with in a competition. Okay. Not because the, where they're located, they have better people, but because they have a larger student body and they have a greater number of people to choose from. So like really small schools don't get to pick the best people. They just have to take everyone that auditions for the choir because they have to have enough people. Mm -hmm. So having white people being the majority in America I think that there would at some point, maybe not in this particular pamphlet, but there would be at some point be a, um, I guess what I say, a misrepresentation of opportunity just based on statistically speaking, if everything was absolutely equal, which we know that it's not, but everything being absolutely equal, it would mean that in advertising, black people would only show up 14% of the time if they're representing their um, section or their percentage of the population, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that these particular genes are only made for white people or whatever. I mean, they might be. That's a bad example. Genes? Well, I'm just talking about marketing and advertising. Okay. So this TV, this whatever might not necessarily just be for white people, but by the nature of there being way more white people than there are black people, they show up in the commercial. Mm -hmm. So do you think that comes into play at all here? Or what, what would you say to that? I'd piss on that idea with extreme <laughs> prejudice. <laughs> Okay, but, but here's why, and, and I, I think that's a fair question. Okay. Um, but I think you have to take into account some other dynamics. Now, I'm talking about uh, the military. You know what I'm talking about? The Air Force pamphlet. Uh-huh. And the military as an organization is one that constantly reflects, uh, I don't want to say public opinion, but it reflects civilian life. And, uh, how do I want to say it? <sighs> The military oftentimes reflects culture. Okay. To a certain degree. And historically, the military has been an organization that has uh, reinforced racial disparity. Okay. Things like blacks can't fly. Right. Blacks aren't smart enough to do this. Blacks can only serve in the kitchen. Blacks can't be soldiers. Blacks can't take the pressure of of war when you're that sort of organization and then you're showing downwind advertisements that seem to still reflect 
disparity, the number argument doesn't work as well for me. Okay, that makes sense. So that's no, I I agree because there are a lot of everything that you said. I'm not disputing any of that. Well, see, my if, if, let's say the number of quality we were just dealing with there being more whites. Uh huh. Then I would ask the question: Why didn't you have Caucasian females in your pamphlet? Because statistically, at, at least broad strokes, at least fifty percent of them should be. I would say. No, that's a good point. That's didn't a good see point. that. It's kind of the same problem I have when I look back at NASA when NASA was being, being formed. Okay, NASA wanted to go out and get the best of the best, so they put out ads in paper, uh-huh. in the newspaper. Hey, if you're interested in maybe a space career, if you've got aspirations to help your country, go ahead and fill out an application. How is it that the majority of people that NASA hires ends up being white males? Yeah, that's interesting. You didn't have... <laughs> You didn't have white females that wanted to work at NASA? I mean, maybe in, was that, 1950, somewhere around there? Yeah, the level of education for females might not have been as high. Might not be in there. Maybe the family structure is different. Maybe they wanted to stay at home. Okay, you didn't have African-American males? You didn't have Asian-American males? Really? Like, just take a broad stroke. Just look. Take a peek into mission control and tell me what you see. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong. It seems to speak to the mentality of that organization and the mentality of the country as a whole. Yeah, it would, but I'm not I'm not just trying to be the devil's advocate. Okay, but it, but it just makes it that much more a precarious situation to come away from that because you're not coming away from everything being equal. Like you're coming out of institutions steeped in racism to there still being black people being a, a minority or the melanin rich people being a minority to the melanin deficient. Right. right. Um, so it's, it's not an easy thing to walk. Cause even if you come out of that and it, like you say, or purge yourself of all of past um, issues of racism in your institution, you're still coming out and things are, are lopsided. So you, you're, you're guilty or look guilty. You know, you, you don't have the opportunity to come into an unbiased nation right right so before we get <laughs> much further into okay. the topic of today i do want to kind of give a, give a disclaimer to our listeners okay and we're obviously going to deal with the topic of racism yes and you and i are very free speaking individuals <laughs> okay. so for people who are um easily offended triggered easily maybe uh sensitive i would i would suggest Listen to this carefully, prayerfully, um, but also understand if maybe you want to skip ahead to, to next week's topic. Can't guarantee it won't be equally inflammatory, <laughs> but we probably won't be talking about racism. However, if racism is a topic that you find interesting or you want to have had a conversation, you want to say some things, maybe a little too scared, but you still want to get some information, I say stick around because we're going to talk a bit. Yeah, no doubt. So, Christopher, let's talk. Here's a question right now. Okay. Why is color so important in this country? <sighs> I mean, if I take a look around, I notice your insurance rates can change based on the color of your vehicle. Yeah. Your political state seems to say a lot about you based on what color it is. You know, you're in a red state or a blue state. Okay. Immediately, we automatically determine some things about you. 
<laughs> based on the state that you live in. Yeah. Housing districts are color coordinated. How do you mean? Like red line, a red line district. Okay. Or divisions. Are uh, they still doing that? Officially, no. Okay. But you ever heard the term technology, what technology can do, it can also undo? No. You never heard that phrase? Uh-uh. Okay, it's uh, one of these technological statements to where you know that. Well, just because we came up with a certain security protocol, it's not foolproof because it's a technological-based protocol. Okay. So if technology can create a security protocol, it can also uncreate one. Okay. Not uncreate, but create the the uh, antithesis of that, which yeah. would nullify the effects of that security program. Okay. Right? Kind of the same thing goes with the law. Okay. The law can create things. What, you know, man can create with the law, he also can uncreate through his actions. All right. So, the, no, they're not technically still doing the same thing with the housing district. But that doesn't mean there aren't other agendas in place that reinforce some of the attitudes that were prevalent when they were doing red line, red line districts. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then you have some, some, some neutral uses of color. Okay. Like traffic lights. Not inherently evil. They don't seem to be. I mean, don't try to get somewhere. <laughs> early in this episode, they're, they're not evil yet. <laughs> Coincidentally, they were developed by a black man. <laughs> were they really? They were. That's cool. Yeah. If I remember my history right, uh, I believe it was um same dude who did peanut butter. Benjamin Carver. That is a wide range of innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Open heart surgery, traffic light. Yeah, he did a lot. Peanut butter. Interesting. I believe it was him. You might not know this, but did I don't know all the facts of black history. No, that's not what I was gonna say. Okay. I was just gonna say traffic lights. So like we're not the only countries that use them, right? Right. So was was it a uh, melanin rich American, and then other countries borrowed from us, or was he not from America? I don't know. Because that's a pretty impressive, um, I guess technological, not really discovery, but innovation. Innovation to be widely accepted worldwide is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure there were some places to probably kick back on it, and I don't know who got the credit. Right. That's a whole different thing, too. Right. But it seems like color's really, really important red, in this country. Red makes you hungry. What do you mean? Well, that's typically they say that if, if you were around the color red, it incites uh, a hunger reflex, which is why, let's see, McDonald's, Wendy's, Rally's, Bob Evans, um, Pizza Hut, off the top of my head. Yeah, that's why red is, is so prevalent in these... Um, food chain companies because it it, make, it makes you hungry or triggers a hunger reflex. So have you ever heard of color theory? Uh, what, like embedded colors and stuff in marketing to trigger emotional, to elicit response? response? Yeah. I haven't heard of color theory like in a, in a formal sense, but I have heard that based on what colors they put in marketing, it does trigger different responses. It's yeah. called color theory. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. That's what it's called. Uh, for at least from what I was told. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. They do use specific colors to trigger emotional responses and manipulate the the viewer without their awareness. Not cool. Right? That's why they say if you're going into a job interview that you should use a take a you know, be be clothed in a cool color. Something like a blue. Okay. Because it's very calming. Interesting. As opposed to one that would incite passion like a red. Um, 
or orange, which is a slight variation off of red. Or like Stanley Ipkiss's power tie from The Mask. Yeah. <laughs> you said Stanley Ipkiss, and I was like, I know that name, but I don't know <laughs> where I know that name. I don't know why we're just talking about colors and everything, and he's got the tie, and he's like, you know, it's kind of a power tie. And That's Cameron funny. Diaz leans in and grabs it, and she's like, is it working? <laughs> That's funny. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch The Mask. Oh, uh, shoot. But have you ever noticed that? The importance of color in society? Um, I've noticed it in little places, but not until you kind of laid it out that I see it as a whole, like, color-coded world. Yeah, it's actually a little peculiar to me. It's interesting. Color in and of itself is, like, amoral. You know, it's not really good or bad. Right. Where I find that I have an issue with the idea of color is when color is applied to people. Yeah. You know, then you get inherent meaning attached to that color. Right. And it becomes problematic really, really quickly. It does. You know what I mean? It does. Uh, it's it's kind of funny. Children seem to understand this inherently. Like when they learn color at school. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden you come back and they're like, well, what color are you? Well, I'm brown. What color is he? Well, he's tan. Nuh-uh. No, no, he's white and he's black. <laughs> yeah. And they, they normally will question that and go, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Right. Because you're not white and black. You're not. Then here you are as an adult finding yourself in a precarious position because now you're actually trying to inadvertently you're trying to educate the child so that they can function in society. Right. But you're actually uh, inadvertently perpetuating a system. Okay. That, that a person may not be aware of. No, that makes sense. Like when it comes to arranging cult, not culture, but society based on color codes, uh-huh. that's a very modern idea. Yeah, it is. Like we used to arrange things based on uh, this whole idea of uh, tribes and people and languages and all of that, right? Uh-huh. Now we don't do that. Okay. We arrange based on, on color. Then from that, we come up with this idea of race. Okay. And then we get the stereotypes that become attached with that. Like these funny things that happen. For instance, each race seems to think that all others, all other races look exactly like. Okay. You ever heard that? I have heard that. Yeah. It's funny because I've said it. <laughs> like, you know what? Listen, to the, to, to a black person, all white folks look alike. I do not have time to pull out <laughs> Swedish, Dutch, you know, uh, why is that the only two that I can think of off the top of my head? British. <laughs> you know, are you from Greece? Are you from Italy? I don't yeah. have time for all of that. You're just white. Right, right. That's all I got. You know, and I'm sure the same thing happens when uh, people look at people who look like me, you know, like a black, black folk. Yeah, well, they say that, like, um, when giving eyewitness accounts or whatever, like trying to sketch a, a, a face of a criminal. I don't know why I'm really fumbling all over, but you know, the eyewitness accounts, whatever. Hey, can you, you know, give me a description or whatever. He's black. Well, <laughs> yeah. If, if you have to describe someone outside of your particular 
people can't see me doing air quotes, air quotes, race, mm-hmm. it's actually more difficult for you to describe their features. That's interesting. But it reminds me of this bit that Chappelle did on how similar people look. Okay. Um, and the fact that our eyes are, aren't trained to notice those differences. So I'm play that. But just want to warn people, there is a little bit of language that Mr. Chappelle uses. I don't have any control over that. If you have sensitive ears, turn down a little bit. If you all right for a good laugh, just listen on like you would if you weren't listening to a Christian program and just in your house normally doing what you do. All right. <laughs> Does, is that fair? That's fair. All right. Let's listen to Dave. But everybody's getting along. I see that shit. I see it all around. Blacks and whites don't fight so much. You know who don't have no beef with anybody is Asian people. I see how y'all be doing. Y'all just lay in the cut. Only 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 people Asian people beef with is other Asian people. Like if you call a Korean guy Chinese, I've done this. They'll flip out. Hey! (laughs) What make you think I'm Chinese? (laughs) I am Korean! I look Chinese. Yes, you do look Chinese. That's why I said it. It's an accident. Look at the untrained now, you all look Chinese to me. It's a mistake. I'm not trying to offend you. Some people say all black people look alike. We don't get bent out of shape. We normally just call those people police. Okay? <laughs> just learn to live with it. That's all I can tell. <laughs> That's great. I remember the first time I heard that I was dying. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I was like, oh, but he's he's caught it. He's caught the nuances. I was like, yeah, to me, all Asian people do look alike. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, snap. It's funny because I don't like being lumped together that way, but I do that to other to people. To other people. Yeah. yeah. And then when he says, you know, hey, listen, the same thing happens to, to black people. We don't get bit out of shape. We just call those people the police. I was like, oh, that was brilliant. Brilliant flip. <laughs> right, right. You know, Because you don't necessarily see it coming. You don't. But uh, it, it also kind of plays on the racial tension between different racial groups and law enforcement agencies. Yeah. And the way that it's viewed from a societal perspective. Right. You know, there's this idea that exists in our society um, that blacks are a bit more criminal than their white counterparts. Okay. You ever heard this? I have, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Where have you heard this? Yeah, I I get around. I <laughs> I heard it from the grapevine. Wow. What <laughs> you're gonna say just growing up. No, no. Um and, and that's a real troubling. It's a it's a it's a troubling stereotype, uh, an idea that permeates culture. Okay. I remember back um back watching a show, I believe it was called Thirteenth documentary on Netflix okay, where they actually talked about the 13th amendment and its significance uh, to the African-American community. But one of the things that they highlighted was some of the history that happened right after slaves were freed with the 13th amendment okay, and how quickly after that, there was a move in Congress to actually create a new class of person who could have their rights uh, restricted. And that would be the criminal. Okay. And certain things became criminalized like on a, on a felonious level. So there were certain things that you could not get as a felon. Now you couldn't vote. Okay. I see what you're saying. You don't have access to 
self-defense mechanisms as a felon, despite the type of felony. So this happened after the 13th Amendment? Yeah. So instead of having black people being a lower class, now felons become a lower class. Yeah, whose labor can be exploited for, for profit by capitalist owners, all sorts of things. It kind of created, some people would argue, uh, a de facto slave uh, slave class. Okay, I can see that. Without it being officially slave class because we just emancipated the slaves. Right. So there's this other thing that happens right about that time where there was a movie that was done called Birth of a Nation. Okay. And it was shown in the White House, right? But in this, you got white actors doing blackface. And you have black, or you have uh, white actors who are doing blackface, stereotyping black people in a criminalized role. Okay. Suggesting that they were going to do things to their their white counterparts and that you need to protect yourself from it. Huh. This type of film, which was in, which is just grotesque. Okay. Was played in the White House, which I said a moment ago. Right. Which should give someone a certain sense of understanding of, of how the country viewed African-Americans. Yeah, that's not good. No. The same program, uh, 13th, actually goes on to point out the fact that one of the reasons the African-American community seems to have so much uh, inherent distrust of law enforcement agencies would be partly because of how the country viewed African-Americans even after the 13th Amendment, but then the fact that the two oldest um, law enforcement agencies in the country, or I think they're the oldest, they're not the oldest, they're probably the most influential, Okay, which would be uh, New York City Police mm-hmm. and LAPD. We're both highly influenced by KKK members. Interesting. Think about the effects both of those have had on African-Americans. Right. And if you're fleeing from the South under the idea, the auspices of being a, what would you call that? A terror refugee? Because they were terrorized in the South. Right. Yeah, no, I think that that works. Yeah. So here you are fleeing as a, as a refugee and you're going into other parts of the country where they still view you as property. And if not as property, as lower class. Right. That creates a problem. That creates an inherent amount of distrust. Yeah, I would say so. Well, when you combine that with a view of the country that's highly color-based, and then you combine that with statistics coming out of law enforcement agencies, that creates, you know, some tension it would. For people in that community. Yeah. So when you start hearing the idea that, you know, we were saying a moment ago that blacks may be more criminal than their white counterparts, there might be an immediate pushback from the African-American community. Okay. It doesn't want to be characterized that way. Do you think that it's an inaccurate statement, though? I'm glad you asked the question. I went and did some research. Okay. So I went to the FBI, uh, their website. And I looked up their uh, Crime Data Explorer okay, and pulled up just some rough numbers. And I was actually very surprised by what I found. Okay. So if you look at some of their statistics, uh, you know, they say numbers don't lie. Uh-huh. I think that's true. They, 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 they don't lie, but they don't necessarily tell the truth either. <laughs> it's like that science thing again? Yeah, like all over. All right. So here's what I found. 
uh, according to the FBI statistics, black or African-Americans uh, in, in 2020 committed 2,773, 595 crimes. Okay. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little under from what I was thinking. Okay. We, as, as Dominic says, we could do better. We could do better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but that, that, that seems like a lot, right? Okay. Yeah. What somebody who's reporting that probably wouldn't tell you. Uh-huh. Is how many crimes are committed by white counterparts. Okay. White counterparts, 270,229. So what was the first number? 273,595. 273,000 by? African-Americans. Okay. Just for rough figures to make it easier to to remember. African-Americans, 273,000. Okay. White Americans, 270,000. All right. It's a 3,000 crime difference. Right. If if there's the same number of people, though. If you do per capita, right? If you do per capita? Yeah. Sure. But nobody's arguing the fact that, hey, they were just 3,000 crimes over. Now, how do we look at it? Should it be that African-Americans are committing more crime or should it be that the whites aren't putting in their fair share? <laughs> you know, I think we're carrying an unjust weight here. I mean, you you would have to take into consideration if you're looking at statistics like that, that the the percentage of the population, though, right? Uh, yeah, that should come into play. But then you also want to consider other things that don't come into play with this argument. Okay. Which is the idea of are all crimes being reported? Yeah. And are all crimes being prosecuted? Well, I mean, those would be prosecuted crimes, right? I would say, or at the very least, report it. Right, but you can't you can't be on record of committing a crime unless you're found guilty. At least, the ideally, right? Because if someone accuses you of committing a crime, but then you're fa- you're either found guilty or not guilty. Okay. So one Good of them point. has to be prosecuted, right? Good point. All right. So let's say these are prosecuted crimes, folks that were found guilty. Right. That makes things that throws things in the, up in the air for me. Okay. As I'm looking at it, because that's not necessarily an indicator of all crime committed. No, but it's, it, it's a, it's gotta be a fairly large sample though. What do you mean? I mean, even if there, if there are crimes, let's just say, I don't know how to say this without, without it sounding bad, but let's say that there, there are a greater number of crimes committed by white people that aren't reported. Okay. How much do you think that that tips the scale? That's a that's an open argument. Cuz I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure that it does. Right. I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's if it leans a scale a little bit. I don't know if it leans a scale a lot. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't think we would have enough information to make an adequate assessment either way. Right. So then what do we do? Do we think that the numbers are some relatively accurate or do we throw them out altogether? I would say you view the numbers with a healthy degree of skepticism. Okay. You know, I mean, yeah, they're, they're numbers and they're there. <laughs> I don't know if they necessarily say what we want them to say though. Okay. And I think that's different. Like if I was, if I was to read this and try to be as accurate as I could, uh huh. I would just say 273,000 crimes were committed by African-Americans that were convicted. 
Okay. And 270,000 by white Americans that were convicted. Okay. And instead of trying to use that to extrapolate additional meaning and value. Okay. I probably would stop there. You see the difference? Yeah. I don't think that's what happens though in our culture. Okay. You seem a little tense. No, not at all. I'm fine. <laughs> and here, here's the thing. Here, here's what it what it hinges on um, for me. You can't separate the present from the past. Okay. Or in, or in other words, this question arises: How much of the past affects the present? That's a good question. So if we have a historically prejudice-based society, to what degree does that affect us on the here and now? To what degree does that affect number reporting? Right. To what degree does that affect number interpretation? I, I, I do think that we we venture down a very da- dangerous road. Jeez. You are nervous. A little bit. <laughs> dangerous road when we, when we can't look at any statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, because they 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 might be wrong. I think that's an unhealthy level of skepticism. Like you I would said, agree, a healthy level. You know, so we have to be able to look at it. But then we also, like you said, have to take into consideration the how do we deal with the things that have happened in the past that are still affecting us in the future, in the the here and now, and in the future. Right. I, I would agree because I, I think a, a lot of I've heard a lot of debates and arguments over race, you know, and they take these, these small samples of either the past or the current state of things. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation that happens in between those two points in time. Right. And I think that one of the really sad things that happens is when you take this type of information and you extrapolate or not you, but we extract extrapolate, additional meaning on top of that okay for instance it's stuff that we won't even necessarily pause and go back and and try to fine-tune like this idea that most crimes are committed within racial groups okay i've heard that i have too i would immediately throw my hands up why because you're scared (laughs) that's funny (laughs) no i would throw my hands up because the the statement is a bit misleading. You have to agree to the idea of racial groups first. Um, yeah, that's a huge problem. Right. Like, that's where I throw my hands away. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, hold it. Because now we're, again, we're extrapolating additional meaning. Right, all based off this idea of race. Exactly. It's interesting because prejudice is a part of man's fallen nature. I prejudge everything. <laughs> I'm for real. <laughs> I had one of my friends. One of my friends asked me. He was like, "Hey, Jace, let me ask you this question: When you when you meet a person, do you immediately think that they are racist until proven guilty, or are they non-racist and they just got to give you a chance?" And I said, "Oh no, hell no, they're all racist. Every That's last sad. person." <laughs> he was like, "For real?" I said, "Absolutely. I will prejudge you in a minute. <laughs> Absolutely, you're racist." That's funny. However. I try to allow a person an opportunity to disprove my position. Okay. So I don't lock you into that. 
No, that makes sense. You know, when I met you. You, what, you really thought I was racist. Absolutely. <laughs> I still think you are. You just changed your footwear. That's funny. Yeah, but you know, it's part of human nature. You look at someone, you make certain assessments. Yeah. And it, that happens. I think one of the biggest problems comes in when we we lock people into that and we don't allow them to disprove our initial assessment. Right. Because it is, I mean, yeah, to prejudge and then just the fallen nature of, of man to, uh, I guess, lump things into into groups or whatever. Like just the the ease of being comfortable. I don't know if it's cognitive laziness or whatever, but it's an interesting that hap- interesting thing that happens. And I didn't remember until just now, and this is going to sound really bad, talking about Planet of the Apes on a racism. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 if I was your publicist, I would probably say you should have picked a different movie. No, but if we're going to talk about it, then I mean, I'm just I'm just going to throw this out there. Go ahead. So I was watching a documentary. My dad used to love the old Planet of the Apes. Okay, from way back in the day. Get your dirty ape hands off of me. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I was watching a documentary about it, and some of the film crew said that they noticed this really strange phenomenon that happened in between takes. filming. Yeah, in between takes. What happened? That all of the the gorillas would hang out with the gorillas, like the actors that played gorillas. So the silverbacks hung out with the silverbacks? Yeah. The like chimps the, hung out with the chimps? Yeah. They broke down into They subgroups. broke down into subgroups. Interesting. Even even at lunch, they would all sit with the ones that they looked like. Interesting. Yeah. So it's crazy though because I was like, literally, this this type of of segregation was crafted by makeup artists. Like literally, they go in and they paint everyone to look a particular way, right? And then they just fell into these particular groups. I was like, that's insane. It is. Like I'm still picturing this in my head. Yeah. You know, all the silverbacks hanging out, all all of the uh, the monkeys hanging out. Did you know there's an actual difference between a monkey and a orangutan? I mean, not an orangutan, a monkey, an ape, and a gorilla. What if it doesn't have a tail? It's not a monkey? No, they have different uh, taxonomical classifications. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're not as closely related as we think? No, they're actually distinctly different. Hmm. It's fascinating, because I would have put them all in the category, you're just a monkey. Right. You're just a larger one. And you're a smaller one. <laughs> and you're a red oranges one. <laughs> okay. No, they're actually very different. All right. I found that fascinating. And I forget what I was watching that brought that up, but I was like, you're kidding me. There's really a difference? Hmm. We're not taught to think that way. We're not. We're not taught to think very much at all. No. Isn't that a problem? It is. I think it's a problem, especially when we're dealing with something like this, because a lot of this stuff, we just assume immediately. Yeah. Um. And I didn't recognize for myself how much racial, I don't know if bigotry is the right word. Okay. So let's say racial prejudice was a part of my outlook until I went to to Vineyard Church. Interesting. There was this really cool thing that they have you do. You got to pick an area to serve. And one of the ways, one of the places they they require you to serve is in the children's area just as an assistant. Okay. Uh, Cause they have registered teachers and all of that actually help, but you're just there just basically to assist pass out uh, snacks and things like that. Just help out. Okay. And as I was back there and I'm hanging out with the kids, 
a couple kids seemed to kind of like gravitate to me. And they would jump up on me and just want to like play. And it freaked me out. <laughs> and I like, I like kids. I'm not really freaked out by kids. Okay. As long as they're not crapping everywhere. <laughs> I'm not really freaked out by that, right? All right. But this freaked me out. It's because they were white kids. Interesting. So these white kids, would, they would come up, they jump up, up on me. To me, to them, I'm just this really big dude, uh-huh. right? Like a big jungle gym. Right. Who's like <laughs> laughing and carrying on or whatever. He's just fun. I'm like a giant toy. Okay. To me, you're a junior racist that's probably going to grow up and be a banker and deny me a loan. <laughs> that's a lot of thought going into that. A lot. Because the next thing I thought was, you know what? It's cool right now when we got the goldfish and we're passing out and I'm your best friend and you're just chilling with me. What would happen if your dad comes up to pick you up from church daycare? What would he think? What would he see? Huh? Would I still just be an assistant? Just helping out at church? Interesting. Or would it be something different? Like, I'm looking at this kid that is looking at me like, why are you so weird? And I'm like, uh, run on, little white kid. You ain't supposed to be playing with me. I'm not supposed to be playing with you. Huh. Okay. You, you're a problem <laughs> right now. And you're trying to process all this while All of this while church. passing out goldfish. That's <laughs> really what's all going on in my mind. So you have, like, the Parmesan goldfish in one hand, and you got, like, the cheddar ones in the other. Right, and I'm like, well, they should definitely stay. Listen, I'm so pure to the segregation <laughs> thing. I separate my clothes when I wash them. Okay? The whites and the blacks stay separate on opposite ends of the washing spectrum. And we have the reds, a little bit of orange yellows, and the grays. Right. Everybody gets their own separate wash. It's right. what keeps everybody happy. Uh-huh. You know, else things start blending together. <laughs> but no, I walked out of that whole session just like confused, internally conflicted. Okay. And it was like God just used it to put a, a spotlight on my own heart. Like, dude, you've adopted these views from the from the world that you're surrounded by. And these are not biblical views that I endorse. You literally can't freely play along with a kid that looks different than you without bringing these subsequent secular ideas into the exchange. Yeah, that's terrible. It's just another human being. Yeah. I see a baby racist. Kid hasn't done anything to me. Hasn't hasn't even said anything. Right? <laughs> he hasn't even come close <laughs> to saying anything offensive. And I'm already junior racist. So it's like, what, a Shere Khan and Mowgli type of situation? Yeah. The, the way Shere Khan looks at Mowgli? Uh-huh. Yeah. Man cup? Yep. Yeah. Racist cup? Racist cup. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, you're spot on. That really is my 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 ideology that I've had to work at changing. Interesting. And so I can almost understand how other people look at other races. But then what angers me so much is getting to the idea of is race a real concept. Yeah, this is interesting. That's a huge question because when we encounter that idea, I was, you know, we were kind of talking about this a moment ago. When we encounter that idea, it's treated as a valid idea. We just kind of accept these terms. Right. We like learn. evolution. Nobody thinks about it. You just accept that this is the way that it is. Absolutely. But then it gets reinforced throughout society. Mm -hmm. When you have to fill out cards or, you know, identification cards, 
What's your name, your address, what's your race? Uh, well, my, which one am I supposed to mark, Mom? Well, you put black, boy, don't you know? Yeah. I do now. <laughs> That's my box, <laughs> right? Yeah. You don't even read the other boxes. You just you have to learn the one you're supposed to check. Right. And as you start learning to check your box, you start thinking within a boxed-in framework. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. Then you have to deal with other people who also have been taught to think in a boxed-in framework. They know their box. Yeah. Because I used to think, like, um, I thought it was interesting that as things changed and got more, I guess, more woke or whatever, uh-huh. like the black might change from from black to African-American, but white was always white. And then we didn't even get white. We just got not Hispanic or Latino. So I didn't even get a box. Just So what this did for me is it internalized this idea that as a majority and as a white person, you're just the like the primordial soup in which things spring from. Like you're not anything because you don't have a particular racial group or whatever that you're associated with. You're just kind of this. Eh. That's you, fascinating. You, you don't even get a box. You ju- you're just not any of these things. The exact opposite happened for me viewing your box. Really? Yeah. Like it pissed me off that I started to notice the the discrepancy in these boxes. Okay. Like one is it, we we divide on those like identity terms based on color and ethnicity, and no one seems to pick this up. So you're white, and then they have black slash African American. Okay. And then they have Latino. Black, non-Hispanic. I'm like, well, what is that? How did we switch from, and then they have white. Okay. First, I got irritated that white didn't have anything after it. So it was treated like the standard. Interesting. Then you get black slash African-American. I'm like, so why does there a qualifier on American? That's interesting. It's interesting how how we, we perceive those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you saw distinction as why do you have to single me out? And I saw lack of distinction as in it. We weren't important enough to be distinguished. Yeah. I see the fact that you guys aren't important enough to quote unquote be distinguished as standard. You're not even considered European American. Interesting. Like if someone said I'm an American, right? Uh huh. If you said it overseas, I wonder what the, okay, let me, let me rephrase that. If you're overseas talking to a group of people and they, you hear somebody talk about, well, he's an American. I wonder what color immediately comes to mind. That's interesting. I would argue probably you're white male. Okay. That would be a misapplication of the term. It would be. Why does African American have to have African in there? in order for you to know that it's referring to someone of darker color. I thought we were just American. Right. Now that's interesting. So where do, where do all these ideas of color come from? Okay. Well, just, just before I okay. hit that one. All right. Sorry. No, I'm going, we, we're going to hit that. But just before that, I just want to take this one step further to show the lunacy of how we categorize and identify ourselves. Okay. So here we are in the United States. Guess what we call ourselves? The United States. We're going to call ourselves the United Statesians. What do we call Americans? Exactly. Now, what would that imply to someone who was overseas thinking of this in a logical fashion? If we're Americans, we come from the Americas, right? Uh huh. But if you look on a globe, what are the Americas? There's three sections of the Americas. 
right? There's North American, okay. Central American, and South American. Okay. In the United States, we are so arrogant. We are the Americans. <laughs> forget about everybody south of Wait, us. No, forget about everybody else. Okay. Yeah. Period. Because if we're talking about Americans and we sit on the North American continent, we do have a country above us that's further north. Yeah. They're not Americans. No, they're Canadians. They're Canadians. That's interesting. So our country is built on this this arrogant idea that we are the status quo, period. That's interesting. We're the status quo Americans. And then you got to go back and look at, well, who founded the country? Unfortunately, white males. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But if I wanted to be a little bit more articulate, European males. Okay. We're primarily responsible for founding the United States. Yeah. So that culture seems to kind of embed into the national culture, the idea of superiority. All right. That's interesting. Right? (laughs) Because then you see it in how we refer to ourselves abroad. Right. So now when you come to this, like, identification chart, I'm getting a little upset when I start to see these disparities. Disparities. Is that the right word? Discrepancies. That's the word I'm looking for. Disparancies. Yep, I'll coin that one. I start seeing these discrepancies. It it doesn't add up. And I keep seeing, again, that's why I see the standard. I see who doesn't have to have modifiers put on their label. Okay. Versus those who do. That's interesting. And uh, I mean, not to, not to keep beating a dead horse here, but in, in my perception and my percept, my growing up everything, I was in a little bit of a bubble. So I'm, I'm not even claiming that this is how every white male interprets it. Okay. But I always looked at the standard as like being subpar for whatever reason. Okay. Like, like because of all the reasons that we talked about, you saw the standard as being like, this is how you're supposed to, or the way that you're supposed to be. And I saw it as like zero that everyone starts here. So like if you're Afri- African American, then you'd be like standard 2.0 or whatever. A little bit higher. Yeah. Like in my mind, and I get growing up that that's classically not been the case in America, but that's kind of what I always thought and how I felt about being white, that it was just the, if you're not anything else, then you have to default to this garbage. <laughs> like that, that's really what it was. Well, that's tragic in and of itself. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that creates a problem. Yeah. E- e- even even for the person who self-identifies that way, mm-hmm. that creates an, an identity issue. You know, you don't want to look at yourself as, as garbage. Right, you don't. And I, I, I get where you're coming from. I'm just laughing because of the irony that <laughs> that's not typically how white America works. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. So I'm on one hand, I'm <laughs> glad you didn't grow up with that level of, uh, of, of racial arrogance. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm saddened that you grew up looking at yourself in a denigrated fashion. You know, I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. But I think it's inherent in the way that our culture works because our culture has embraced color coded division of humanity. It has. And this is a fairly recent idea. Okay. You know, it used to be, you go back to biblical times and we've talked about this before In biblical times, you would refer to people based on, I believe it was like uh Tribes, people, language, tongues, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You didn't refer to people by color. Right. This whole color classification system was created by a dude 
um, by the name of Johan F. Blumenbach, if, if I remember correctly. <laughs> sounds like a fake name. What, Blumenbach? <laughs> Blumenbach. The Johan sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. uh, apparently, he was the first person to divide humanity on the basis of skin color. Uh, came up with this this essay. I don't know if it's an essay, but basically divided people along mm-hmm. five lines. Um, you know, you had the whites, which are the Caucasians that he believed descended from the Caucasus Mountains. Okay. Um, you you had the mongrels. Um, you had the Negroids, which are blacks. The mongrels, I believe, were were brown. You had the the Indians, uh, who were red. Okay. And then you had your your Asians that were yellow. And he also felt that white race was the most beautiful race. Of course. Which makes him a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. So this whole classification classification system of white, black, brown, yellow, red is based off of white supremacy. That's interesting because it has me thinking about like the early days of the U.S. Mm-hmm. When, like, I hate to say it, but like there was the <laughs> prejudice was seen all over several different demographics, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just color-coded because you could have an issue with Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, which is how you ended up with these underground uh, mafioso groups or whatever because they were all, you know, segregated. I'm I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt you. Wasn't that like the gangs of New York? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but all, and like Italians and Irishmen have pretty similar skin tones, mm-hmm. but it was where they were from, their actual ethnicity that, that caused this division. I'm not justifying it, but it's just, it's something inherent in the, in the sinful nature of, of humans to divide and, and separate. But when I believe it was when we adopted this, you know, white, black, brown, yellow, red narrative is when all of a sudden Irish and Italian immigrants stopped being Irish and Italian immigrants and they were just white. Now, it wasn't an instantaneous thing, mm-hmm. but that you no longer had to hate specific groups of of immigrants. They just got color-coded. Yeah. It's interesting. And immediate, uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm right with you because I, I was going to say immediately, but like you said, it didn't happen immediately. Because you still have the echo of the past affecting the present. Right. That we were talking about a moment ago. Mm-hmm. But what you do lose pretty quickly is the justification for that level of hatred. Right. There's no longer a quote-unquote rationale right. for it. You, know, right. you well, guys are all the same. How did you not give them a loan? They're the same color. Right. They're both white. Uh, go, when did we change this? Right. <laughs> I thought we were hating people based on... Like, you got you to gotta update the hate doctrine. Okay, I gotta know why I'm hating folk. <laughs> All right, it can't it can't just be for the made up reason of well their 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 skin color's different. Yeah, you gotta get this year's issue of, of why <laughs> right. to hate people. <laughs> I need the twenty twenty two edition. It was funny though, like as much as as I try to pride myself on on being perceptive and you know, not buying into the the racial narrative. I was watching a debate with Candace Owens and so she's a black woman, and then I I still hate that we have to use these terms. So she was a melanin-rich woman <laughs> talking to a melanin-rich man, and they were talking about, you know, like um, racial quotas and stuff for colleges and, and how to properly diversify or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, well, you get this type of diversity if you have this many people of this color. And she's like, that's not true. I'm not, I'm not putting Candace up on a pedestal, but she's like, look, we are both almost exactly the same skin tone. We are not anything alike. 
our religious, our political alignments, everything. Right. So just because we're a particular color doesn't mean that you're getting a specifically diverse type of person because we're different within our color group. And I was Which like, Which is a great point. Yeah. I actually had to step back and I was like, okay, because it makes sense. But when you think of, oh, diversity, because we're so conditioned to think color codedly, like, oh, well, if they're the same color, then they're the same. Even though we know that they're not, but our, our response, and if we don't take the time to stop and think, we don't recognize the points that Candace Owens was making. No, she's spot on. Like, it, it cracks me up, dude. I have these moments in my life where the way that I think actually ends up working against me. And I think God takes great pleasure at those moments because they create <laughs> these, these hilarious train wrecks in my mind. Okay. Um, and I, I had one when I when I was looking over different quote unquote races of people. Mm-hmm. There's one group of people that defies all logic and blows this whole thing out of the water for me because okay. I can't explain them. And that is true Indians from India. Okay. If you look at them compared to the stereotypical classifications and feature sets that you would expect from people of different places, Mm -hmm. they have all the feature sets that don't match the colors they are. (laughs) Okay. Do you understand what I mean? I think so. Okay, they'll have black people's skin. Okay. But they'll have white people hair. All right. I'm like, how'd you pull that off? (laughs) Wait, that makes no sense. You know, like, you know, the hair that you could style and all that stuff. I'm like, but that doesn't go with that level of darkness. <laughs> I know your hair should be short and curly and crankly. Right? Yeah, should should be. No, <laughs> they'll, they'll flip it real quick. And you're like, this doesn't match. It's like, I, I can't say that because it would probably be offensive. Okay, let me say it this way. It's like if people came from a manufacturing plant. <laughs> It's like, okay, I'm going to take all these parts and I'm going to color wash them different colors and put them together. Okay. It's almost like what you get when you look over the vastness of India. India's got a huge population. There's a lot of people there. Right. So it's a great sample to see different types of people that seem to to violate the visual stereotypes that you would expect. Okay. That makes sense. Well, then I took it a step further and I was like, if you put an Indian person's arm next to mine, and there are some darker Indian people that mm-hmm. have this roughly same melanin uh, concentration as I do. If you were just looking at our arms, could you tell the difference? Huh? Could you pick out the African-American arm and the Indian arm? Probably not. Right. I heard Vodibaka make the point. I'll believe in racism when I can go into a blood bank and you show me black blood. Oh, I like that. And I was like, yo. (laughs) I was like, you know what, dude? That's dope. Yeah, I like that a lot. Because you can't. Right. Then it starts to blow up this idea. Are we really that different? No, we're not. But we're conditioned to think this way. We are. The heck was that? Was that me? It certainly wasn't me. Did it it come through on the recording? I heard it. (laughs) Maybe I should have had a fourth chicken sausage. (laughs) Three wasn't enough. I guess not, man. (laughs) Kind of scared me there for a moment. But it reminds me, like, just the the levels of division, like, take the Civil War. Uh We're often taught that it was about slavery. But, I mean, I think we've talked enough between the two of us that it, it really wasn't about that. 
but here we have one of the bloodiest wars in America, and it's again it's between two sets of white people. Mm-hmm. You know, two sets of even you know European colonials. Is that the right? Yeah, colonizers. Right. I mean, if we want to use that that type of specific language, and it was a horrible war because they differed in an ideology. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea that we have to separate or we need to perceive things from from these racial lines that were set up by someone who was a racist. Well, I guess he would have created it himself. I mean, if he but if he identified with one, he also could have been right a racist or or at the very least a white supremacist. Right. So even if we hate the idea of racism, the fact that we're we're talking about people groups using that terminology is buying into or lending to this system that a white supremacist set up, which just sounds like you're you're set to lose before you even have the conversation. You are. And then here's a further irony. So we're talking about the Civil War. You know why they call it the Civil War? Why? Because it was a brother against brother. Interesting. Yeah, you might actually side, you might, you might literally side with the North and it's splitting families. But even further than that, we were all supposed to be one brotherhood, one country. And we're splitting over this idea of which, you know, we, we touched on the fact that it wasn't about slavery, but we didn't talk about what it actually was about. Okay. It was about labor manipulation. Yeah. It was really about the elites controlling free labor and profits that the South was getting. Because mm-hmm. they had a basically labor market they didn't have to pay. And the North wanted in on that. They wanted in on the profits. And they basically invaded and said, you're going to do it our way. Right. Because they were, the, the North was getting funding from the uh, internet, the um, central bankers, right? Yeah. The Rothschild-controlled central banks, mm-hmm. which had been behind all the other wars. And that's what leads to this one. But then we cover it up. We cover up the true meaning with the notion that it was about slavery. Right. Because the whole Emancipation Proclamation was Lincoln's way of emotionally manipulating um, men in the North to join the war because nobody wanted to fight this war. Like this, you know, we talk about bankers being behind wars, and this is one that nobody wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. No, people in the South didn't want to invade the North. They just didn't want the North to come down and kill them. And people in the North weren't really interested in going down and killing people in the South. Like it was all these things were made up. So it was made to look like it was about freeing slaves to try to get the North, the the men in the North behind a, an idea that could be supported because nobody's going to be like, Hey, you should enlist because the Rothschilds want more money. You know, nobody's going to do that, but be like, Hey, it's about freeing slaves. So that got people to uh, enlist and it was six month contracts. And after six months was up, they were like, that's not really what this is about. And they stopped doing it. Really? Then Lincoln had to institute, um, it's not consignment. What is it? A draft. So he was forcing the men in the North to fight because they didn't want to fight a war because they knew it wasn't about slavery. And this caused riots in the North. There was uh, riots and fires because he was enslaving. Now this is going to sound touchy, but he was enslaving the white men to fight to free black people in the South, you know, using his political propaganda. It was all nonsense because the Rothschilds wanted more money. Oh, that's crazy. It's insane. Which has got to make you ask the question, are the elites and elite bloodlines behind even the idea of racism? 
They've got to be. How so? How, how would you argue that? Uh, I mean, if you have to look at who benefits from our racism, right? Okay. What? Why are you laughing? I was like, well, I'm looking at, at the notes. So I was like, well, that was a long jump. <laughs> but yeah, if you wanted to look at who benefits. Right. But it, it the the whole discussion about racism in our system, systematic racism or uh, what's the other one? Institutional. Uh-huh. It does remind me of that. The video you sent me uh, about a week or so ago that kind of kicked off a discussion for this episode. You know what? I think I have that. Okay, let's let's listen to it. Hi, y'all. So before I ask my question, I want to clarify a point that y'all mentioned earlier. You said you don't believe in white privilege, correct? Yeah, it's it's a myth. It doesn't exist. Okay. So according to the Bureau of Prison Statistics um, from last month, 38.3% of our current inmate population is black. But according to the 2020 census data, only 12.2% of our national population is black. So if you don't believe in white privilege, how do you explain this disparity? So why are they in jail? It has been this way for years, um, since the 90s. why Why do people go to jail? Why are black people in jail at higher rates than white people? That's the question, right? Maybe because they commit more crimes than white people. But that's not true. It actually is. They do. So every independent analysis shows that blacks have committed a disproportionate amount of crime. No one wants to say it out loud, but it's true. In fact, in New York, 52% of murders are committed by blacks, 40 plus percent of arson, 60 plus percent of drug deals. And so the question you should really be asking is what drives them to commit crimes? That's the question, right? The real question is, And maybe I can ask you, what percentage of blacks are raised with two parents in the home? So actually, according to the Uniform Crime Report for 2019, black or African-American individuals committed only about one million crimes, while white people committed about four million crimes. Yeah, but that's proportion. Yeah, how about the proportion? There's a lot more white people than black people in the United States. It's a 60% white country and a 14% black country. So you just proved my point. You literally, so so basically, that's a disproportionate amount of crime. It is. But listen, I want to say, look, you are coming up here and you're asking a question, and that's not easy to do, first and foremost, no matter what. And I really appreciate your question in front of all these people. It's hard. So thank you for asking your question. But let me point out what what you just did, and you didn't know that you did it. You switched from proportion to raw numbers. And you did that to make a point that you thought you were making, but you weren't. But look, your issue was that black Americans only make up 13% of the population, and yet they make up, I think you said, like 38% of the prison population. And then you, yes, you switched to raw numbers because... So black people only make up 13% of the population, but they commit 40% of all homicides and 60% of all violent crime. Unfortunately, I don't think that's anything inherent in black Americans. That's not what I'm saying. That's just the fact. And what Charlie is saying is, look, we've got to look at why that is. So you're claiming that that disparity is inherent proof of discrimination. So would you also say the fact that there are fewer Asians in jail means that then white people, that there is discrimination against white people? No? Disparity isn't proof of discrimination is what I'm (laughs) trying to say. So let me just throw, and Ali's exactly right. What percentage of blacks grow up with two parents in the home? I don't know. Yeah, less than 20%. That's why there's so many blacks committing crimes and they're in jail. It's that simple. 
The death of the black family is why blacks are in jail higher than their population percentage. It's that simple. May I see your criminology degree? Do you have uh, one? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. No, Wait. We've got a, we've got a, are you we, a we biologist? From an we told you Brown Jackson. So, no, let, let, me, let, let me ask you a question. So, um, so do I need a criminology degree to be able to understand that 75% of blacks don't grow up with two parents? To be well versed in it, I believe so. Do, okay. you have, do you have one? I don't, but I'm studying it. Okay, right but now. you oh, she exactly. studied it. But you did the same thing. You looked at a statistic, and he did the same thing. You Look, don't have a criminology have degree, you neither does he. Hold on a second. One? You're doing an argument from authority. Okay, it's a fallacy. So mm -hmm. the laws of physics don't change whether or not you're a physicist. Okay, the law of thermodynamics doesn't change whether or not you take a course on it. Answer the question: Why do blacks have a broken family versus a nuclear family, and does that translate to higher rates of crime? Do you admit that? Why is it that blacks don't have parents, though? Why? Good question. We subsidize single motherhood in this country to the federal government of the United States. Great question. Now we're getting somewhere. Back in the 1960s, we put forward a program where black women married the government and broke up with the men they were with. Welfare state, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and that has contributed to blacks committing more crimes. I believe institutionalized racism is your answer, but I don't believe I'm getting anywhere oh, with y'all. So. But no, just, just let me say, just let me point something out. Did you know that it's not white Americans that have the lowest incarceration rate or the lowest rates of crime or the highest graduation rates or the highest median income? It's not white Americans. It's Asian Americans. They have the highest median income. They have the highest graduation rates. They have the most degrees. They have the lowest incarceration rates. And guess what? They also have the lowest single parenthood rates. Okay? So that is true across the board. It's not just just black Americans. And unless you're willing to say that the reason why Asian Americans make more than white Americans or the reason why Asian Americans go to jail less than white Americans is because there is systemic institutional racism against white people in this country, then your argument against black people doesn't really work. So let me ask you one thing. You said institutional racism. I got a black friend right up here. He's great. What, what can, he's great. So let me ask you. Let me, let me ask you a question. What can I do that he can't do? What do you mean? If, if, if institutional racism was real, what can I do that he can't do? Well, you're less likely to get arrested. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, if we both commit a crime, he's going to get arrested and I'm not? He could. What, wait, so we just went through this. Blacks commit a disproportionate amount of crime in this country because of broken families. So give me one law on the books. You said it's institutional. Families. Give me a law anywhere that discriminates against blacks. Give me one law anywhere in America. You want current or past? How about right now? Well, the fact that crack cocaine is criminalized more than regular cocaine. No, no, if I deal if I deal crack cocaine, I'm getting arrested regardless of skin color. Give me a give but if me you a law. White cocaine, you would. You're Give me a law anywhere that allows white people to, to commit crimes and get away with it and blacks can't. Does that law exist? Not anymore. But because there's no institutional real. racism in America. The no idea way. of institutional racism is laws on the books. Just because it's not down on paper doesn't mean it's not real. Okay, give us an example. Not just God. a disparity. Not just a God? disparity. God isn't, you don't see God. He's on paper. Read the Bible. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I'm getting nowhere with y'all, and y'all are not answering my questions, so I'm going to end this Q&A right here. Thank you for your time. <laughs>
Okay. We actually did answer her questions, but I do appreciate, I really, even though she's got an attitude, um, she, I, I do appreciate her courage. I do. That, that is difficult. That's difficult yeah, to come I mean, up here and ask a but question, I, see, but you can also do it respectfully. But what bothered me about her, I'm glad she was there. She wasn't being honest. At least be honest, okay, and be willing to be corrected. Well, that was a fun fireworks show to end our time together, right? All right. There's a whole lot going on there. A lot. Um, I, I really liked this exchange. Yeah, it was pretty good. It, it was definitely entertaining. Yeah, but it was also thought-provoking. It was. Because this was the thing, like you said a moment ago, that pretty much uh, spurred up this whole conversation, which influenced this, this episode. Right, we, we, like, we talked for like four hours after this. Right, we were like, oh, we got to do an episode on this. Yeah, for uh, sure. And there's there's a lot that's, that's touched on here. I like the fact that, first off, the <laughs> I'm not even going to go with what I like. The way the questions presented was was problematic. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand when you're getting up and you're phrasing a question, um, it's on the speaker, the questioner, to phrase it properly. Right. Uh, which was this, this young lady didn't do, unfortunately. But it raised a very interesting question for me. Okay. Which is the whole idea of institutionalized racism. Now I've heard this approached a couple different ways. Okay. Uh, and each time I heard it approached the response or the, the counter to that was show me laws on the books. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's a very effective counter argument, but I don't think that's where I would have started. I want to start it with laws on the books to substantiate this idea because I think that you can have agendas in place or policies there are not necessarily laws that still function similar to the way the law would. Okay. Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. But there's no necessarily there's not necessarily a law that's on the books. So the end goal can still be achieved. Okay. That makes sense. So I, I have a couple because I've I've heard people talk about institutional versus systemic racism. Okay. Um and in, in a world today, really trying to nail down definitions is, is a bit difficult. Right. Um, so, but for, for the sake of this conversation, I kind of have, I think, a pretty good definition. But you have to keep in mind that whoever else is using these terms might not be using them this way. So do you believe in systematic racism? Well, we have to define what it is first. Because you, you, were, you were saying that... Um, to no longer have laws on the books, but still be able to achieve your agenda would fall under what, what in my research showed institutional. So despite repealing Jim Crow and passing civil rights le- legislation and all of that, the remnants of the effect of that still being found in America, in the institution of America, mm-hmm. would be what people are calling institutional racism. Okay. So if I could use a practical example, um, just to try to tie into what you were saying, it's not uncommon to find black children in America that don't know how to swim. This feels ominously racist. Well, it, it, it is, but it, I, I had to do research to figure out why. Okay. And it's not that black people can't swim. No, it's that we had a bad experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
really took your mind. <laughs> it, it really did. You derailed I my train of thought. Had a bad experience. But no. So during the, I don't know if we could call it the deepest moments of racism, but when we actually had laws on the books, right? Black yeah. black families were not allowed to public pools. Right. So what that did is it weeded out the idea of um, swimming for recreation in those families. It just wasn't something that you did. So as they grew up and they had children, and I mean, we're not really that many generations away from civil rights and all of that, but j just a couple, and you, you have these families. That's a big point for me. It is. That's really why I look at a lot of people. I'm like, yes, you're racist until you prove <laughs> different. Because we're not that far, which we're, means I mean, parents or grandparents were. Rosa Parks passed away in our lifetime, right? right. I didn't realize how old my mom was until wow. I real. I know. <laughs> I'm really going to hear this. <laughs> Sorry, later. Mama Spears. Right. But no, seriously, I didn't realize her age in a practicum sense mm -hmm. until she explained to me that when schools were desegregated, her family was the first to go to an all-white school. Your mom. My mom. Yeah, that's nuts. Right. Like, they got sent. They were the first black family to go to the all-white school there in Raymer, Alabama. Yeah. That's not an easy experience. No, not at all. And it wasn't like all of them were in the same grade together huddled up. Right. They were, were split spread by out. Age. Yep. So being able to deal with that, like, I've had to... I've had to process some of my mother's experiences by way of third-party echoes. How do you mean? Well, I don't want to get too far off your point, so please remember where you're at. Yeah, yeah, I know where I'm at. Okay, but like, you know, you the idea of epigenetics, what it happens to a parent gets imprinted on a child? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that happens emotionally and, and cognitively to a certain extent. Well, just, I mean, for the sake of specificity, your environment imprints on your DNA, and then that... DNA that's been imprinted by your environment gets passed on to your children. Okay, but there's also a component that your choices can mar your DNA as well. Well, yeah, because your choices change your environment, which then imprints on your DNA. You said that the things that your parents do uh, affect the DNA of the child, and I just wanted to make sure that we weren't saying that, like, if your mom has ice cream now, your DNA here in the studio is being affected. No, but like the example that I saw that was put was like people who commit murder mm -hmm. actually do show a mar in their DNA. Okay. Yeah. Particularly for that particular choice set. Right. That and they committed and that can be passed down. Yes. Yes. So that, that was a perspective I was coming from. Okay. I was, um, I was just trying to, no, no, that's cool. But I, what I meant by I've had to process some of those things. There are emotional predest pre, predispositions that I share with that I've had that I didn't know where they really came from. And I've had to talk to my mom like, Oh, that's probably where some of those feelings come from. Okay. She didn't process a lot of that when she was going through it. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and we've had to talk about that in, you know, years later. Okay. And it also shows up on choices and decisions that are made based on things that you went through, which would shape my childhood. Right. And imprint on me. Okay. But some of those things were, I don't want to say like, uh, <laughs> I told my mom, I was like, you are probably under racist. Like I would expect you to be way more racist than you are. <laughs> now I mean that like, like tongue in cheek. Like there are some things my mom will say, I'd be like, that's just not appropriate. That's not proper. 
You okay. can't say that. That's probably where I get some of my tendencies from. Like, white folks, what can you do? <laughs> can't live with them. No, because they go exploring and do crazy things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there, there's something she would say, and I'd be like, oh, wow. And there are other things she would say, and I'm like, I am so shocked that you're not more racist. Interesting. Like, she doesn't mind having white friends or white folks over. Growing up in the deep south, I would mind. Right. I would definitely, you and I would not be friends. <laughs> you know, you, you throw that back to that, that day and age. Mm-hmm. No, that's not happening. Like they told me stories of, of times where like the, the KKK was coming down the road and they had to go get shotguns and defend themselves because the grandparents weren't home. They were working. Yeah. I had a friend uh, that I used to work with from, he's from Alabama. And he said, if uh white boys in pickup trucks would drive down the road, you'd hide in the bushes because they'd come through with fishing poles. Yeah. I mean, we got we got a, a a a large plot of land and there are parts I have never been. And I don't intend to go. <laughs> Cause it's way back near the trees. And I was like, I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna be hanging out with other family members. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm safe right here. <laughs> so yeah. I can make it back to Ohio. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a it's a very um tense and very tangible history. And that was their childhood, but I would have never equated your childhood was like desegregation of schools. Right. Like, that's just something I, I had to remember as a fact going through school sometime that they desegregated these things. Mm-hmm. No idea that they're talking about my mother's childhood. Right. That is not that far away. Right. It's way closer than we think or we're taught to think even. Absolutely. So I'm like, she remembers Martin Luther King getting shot and killed. She remembers the, the Rosa Park thing. That's crazy. Right? Like, I have to remember it, but it says an abstract fact. Right. It's history for you. Yeah, it's personal experience and past for her. Right. Especially growing up in Alabama. Yeah, that's crazy. So it, when you go forward, when you're thinking, okay, so the people who my mother had to deal with, that's somebody's grandparent. Right? Somebody's mm-hmm. parent. Well, think, if she's in school and she's dealing with teachers that are not inclined to help black children out. Because they don't even want you in their class. Right. And classmates that don't want you sitting next to them. And people who scoot away from you just because you dropped something on the floor. And it came from you. It said you were dealing with Planet of the Apes. You know, <laughs> and you touched it. Right. So you got to repeal back. And nobody there who looks like you. Yeah. Nobody that you can find some sort of visual camaraderie or comfort. Very few people who, from a character standpoint, stand up and say, hey, that's not right. Don't do that. Right. Everybody's get everybody's doing the same basic thing. Not to mention your life is threatened, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn not to raise your hand. You learn not to ask questions. You learn not to you learn to go under the radar. Yeah. You, you learn it to just go with the status quo. These are all things that affected me as a child. Yeah. Growing up, I do all the opposites. <laughs> Interesting. I know, right? I told you I've had to process. Yeah. You know, these, these echoes because they became part of the sonic background uh, of my childhood in various ways. Okay. But when you're seeing the people who are, who are perpetuating those things, okay, for my mom, her classmates are her contemporaries, right? They're going to be about her age. The people who were training her, who would be the adults, those are like somebody's grandparents now. Right. Okay, so if the adults or the grandparents now had racist views and passed them on or endorse them 
and the kids that would be my mother's contemporaries, those contemporaries would be the parents of folk I would be dealing with now. Because they had children, like my mom had children, we're roughly the same age range. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. I'm meeting those people, and folk are like, hey, do you think folk are inherently racist? I'm like, yes, yeah, civil rights was like two people ago. <laughs> right? That's not that far back. No, I get that. But I think there is, like, even the remarkable amount of change possible in a person's life. So I, I, I get what you're saying. And I think that we need to be um, starkly aware. That, I don't think that's right. We need to be very aware of how recent in America's past uh, civil rights and all of that was. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, I think we get into a little bit of dangerous territory when we start going, oh, because your parents were racist, you're probably racist too. Because there is, especially in a day where we're trying to talk about it, like there's a lot of things that you do different than your parents because you recognize there are issues. You recognize that there's certain characteristics your parents have or weaknesses that they have that you don't want to carry on. Mm-hmm. So, so you change that. I think that's just as possible with racist ideas as well. So I get that you're saying it's it's possible. We shouldn't disregard the fact that it's possible, but just because it's recent doesn't, I don't think makes everyone a racist either. <laughs> no, I would, I would absolutely agree. It does not make everyone a racist. I would probably start out with the suspicion that you more than likely are. Okay. Only because it is, it, it, it's the rarest of people in my experience who adequately assess their childhood and their upbringing, look at the deeply held views of their parents mm-hmm. and disagree and move in opposite direction. That's fair. That, that's not a super common thing. No. I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. And so I'm thinking if you, if you have a family line and a community that has this embedded view, how likely are you to be the one that's way different? It's not impossible, but more likely you're not, you're, you're not. Right. Hence why I'll start from, yeah, you probably are, but you can, you can prove me wrong. Okay. Just let me see your character. Interesting. But I guess I'm not surprised when they exhibit certain types of racial, uh, I don't want to say stereotypes, but racial proclivities. Okay. I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. I expected that when there's a certain level of racial insensitivity, I expected that. You know, based on this, because it, it takes it takes a while for this to get weeded out of a family line. It does. You know, that's why when I met your parents, I was so surprised at how embracing they were of me. That's and cool. vice versa. I was surprised how quickly my parents embraced you. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty great. I'm like, you don't know him. This dude could be psychotic. Matter of fact, he is. <laughs> you, just, you just don't know the layers of which he is. I'm, I'm working with him. That's funny. You know, I, I think that um, I, I think that you're absolutely right. We cannot forget how close that is, and I think we have to ask the next question, which is how much of that has gotten into us. Right. I think there's an important, and eventually we'll get back to institutional and systemic racism, but I think it's important. I was thinking about this as we were doing the show today to separate. Well to understand how the institutions have affected us, but then also separate ourselves from the institutions. That can be, that can be very challenging. It's, it's not an easy thing to do because like, I was just thinking, you know, we went to the jazz and ribs fest. What am I not allowed to talk about that? There's no S jazz and rib fest. My bad. It's cause I'm white. <laughs> 
That's funny. Uh, no, but it was, it's a really cool experience. And, and to go there and see the eclectic group of people, not just whites and blacks, but people of all different ethnicities and clearly different um, opinions about attire and sexual orientation. And everyone's there. And I didn't see any animosity. I'm not saying that it wasn't possible, mm-hmm. but it, that setting is not the setting that you would expect to find if you're just watching the news to tell you how people function. That's true. There, there's a common narrative that's put forth um, that we that gets absorbed into our, um, our our conscious level thinking, you know, our collective thinking mm-hmm. that actually comes from um, a a manipulated narrative that we have to we have to be aware of, and that's why you were saying a moment ago how much how difficult it is to separate between the two. I would think that's one of the reasons why. Okay. The other thing I think is that institutions are created by people and people have specific value sets that they can build into the institution. Okay. Now that they can be taken out of that institution, but it definitely is reflective of its creators. Right. No, that makes sense. So, Which leads us right back <laughs> to it, where it, you wanted to go. Right. So uh, just an example of the, the pool thing. I, I think at least in my mind, it's really easy to see. And I, I, doesn't ruffle a lot of feathers. So here we can, we can get to the meat or the crux of the issue uh, without navigating a lot of emotional barriers. Okay. So it was a thing that black families weren't allowed in public pools, not an issue now, but because it was instituted and families were raised in that environment Mm -hmm. as it was part of the institution, then it becomes part of the life of a melanin rich family that we don't swim. We just stay away from water. Well, if you take just an ignorant assumption that because, well, this is no longer a law, so we can deal with everyone exactly the same, but not realize that there's a generation of young, melanin-rich children that don't know how to swim and might not know that they don't know how to swim because this has just not been a part of their life. Right. Ignoring the very recent racist laws is a detriment to these children. You know, how, like we were saying, how much of the past affects today? Like that has to be taken into consideration that there's a, there's a higher number of melanin rich children that might not know how to swim or be aware of their, their lack of ability. And that is based off of laws that were put in place beforehand. Hmm. And I think that would be an excellent um, example of institutional racism because we're looking at the very real effects of racist laws that were put in place. And now we have to, I think, properly learn how to handle these. The other term that's used is systematic racism. Okay. This one is just the idea that because a majority of people that are in roles in decision-making roles, that they're going to make decisions based off of their racial proclivity. So there's a more white people in politics and political office right now. So, this systematic racism assumes that because they're white people there, that they're just going to make rules to better white people. That one I have a little bit, the, the overgeneralization, I have a little bit more trouble getting behind. Okay. Now I do think that what is it? Most people that are serving in Congress right now have been there since before the formation of the internet. 
that might be more of an issue than the fact that they're white, but <laughs> touche. But so I think just in, um, to try to come up with some delineation, institutional racism is really the result of racist laws that we've had on the books or like you were saying, redlining and how those things are still, the effects of that is still seen in society. And because it's so recent in our history, we have to take those into consideration. I would say that's institutional. Systemic is just assuming because the white people in power are racist, that they're going to make racist laws. Based off of this delineation, Jason, what do you think? Do we have institutional or systemic racism in the nation today? That's a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a loaded question. Um, I would argue that If we don't have institutionalized racism, then what is it that we do have? And here's what I mean by that. Okay. Laws are placed on books to counteract human nature in the decision-making apparatus that we have, that we would, we would identify certain behaviors as wrong but we have the embedded desire to do those, right? Okay. Okay, so if you have laws on the books that says um, <laughs> it's wrong to blow stuff, you can't blow stuff up, right? Okay. And then you ask, do we have blow stuff up itis in America? <laughs> I'd probably ask the question, remove the law and find out. Interesting. Do you get the rationale? Uh-huh. If we don't have institutionalized racism uh, because of laws that we have on the books that's supposed to counteract that, if we remove those laws, would we still behave as a quote-unquote civilized, non-racist-oriented society? <laughs> if we wouldn't, then you can't make the argument that we don't have it in our society. It's just latent. Right counteracted by the fact that the law's there. It's kind of like somebody once said, it was a comedian that said, you know this thing about, uh, uh, why can't I think of it? This this thing about uh, minimum wage. Mm -hmm. so I hate the idea of minimum wage. I think it was Chris Rock. Okay. He said, because the only thing minimum wage is, is really an employer saying, you know what? If I could pay you less to do your job, I would. But it's just <laughs> illegal. Yeah. It's not that I want to pay you this much. Because I think your your job, you're worth it, you know, as an employee. Right. It's the fact that it's illegal for me to, but if I could, I wouldn't pay you behind nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, then do we have really fair wage in the country? That's interesting. A lot of, I guess it does seem like a lot of this conversation likes to avoid dealing with the sinful nature of man. That's it. That is precisely the issue that no one wants to talk about. And it's understandable. You you don't want to get to a place where you're talking about sinful nature, because in order to do that, you're talking about the subject of sin, which means you got to be talking about divine law, which means you have to talk about divine law giver, which means you are back to the subject that we're trying to avoid in this country at all times, which is an absolute God. <laughs> yeah. At all times. Yeah, no. We, we don't want to talk about this at all. Yeah, that's a good point.
So yeah, you, the sinful nature of mankind is really the problem. You can't legislate that out. Right. Now you can, I'm trying to think of the right phrase. Um, you can rebuff it. Mm-hmm. You can squelch it. You can minimize it to a certain extent, but to eradicate it, laws won't do that. Right. You cannot encourage it. This is true, but it takes a change of heart, which is what Christianity offers to a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that, that gets rid of these, these nuanced fruits of a corrupted tree. Yeah. You follow me? <clears throat> and the mm-hmm. worst thing is that racism is an erroneous concept. Because the idea of race was fabricated. Absolutely. Yep. However, the effects of racism are not erroneous at all. They are very real. Yeah. Very real. Prejudice is a real concept. It is. But when you when this idea of modern race is created in direct contra, uh, contravention, I believe. Sounds right. To the biblical narrative, uh-huh. you get a, a major problem. So I wouldn't go as far as to say race doesn't exist because scripture says out of one race, he created all mankind. Okay. All right. So, so it's the human race, gotcha. but this idea of separate color based races that have been fighting for evolutionary advantage along these, you know, this evolutionary tree, so to speak, that's an erroneous concept. Yeah. The idea of scientific uh, racism theory. Have you heard that? Uh-uh. You want to invoice today or tomorrow? Uh, can you make it the the beginning of the month? Oh, okay. I, I got you. But wait, well, that would be tomorrow, wouldn't it? Like I said, I got you. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> no, scientific racism theory is this idea that there is a discrepancy between racial groups and that there is racial superiority and racial inferiority. Okay. And it was bla- based off of the work done by uh, Blumenbach. Okay. Like Bloombach came up with the separations. Another dude, I can't remember his name. He had a real weird name. Uh, came up with the idea that there are scientific quote unquote evidence to suggest that certain races are more superior to others. Also was the same dude coincidentally who did the work on uh, the Aryan race. Interesting. You wouldn't really expect that to all of the stuff to be connected. Well, yeah, you would. <laughs> Right? This dude wrote an essay on the inequality of the human races, the hidden cause of revolutions, bloody wars, and lawlessness. Interesting. Uh, but I mean, it's interesting, but if you think about it, it's the natural conclusion. If, if evolution is true and we see these subtle changes in people groups, then we have to assume that somebody was the first one, which would be the evolutionary inferior, and someone's got to be the latest change, which would be the the alpha human right Mm -hmm. and then it would take the whole whether or not we have racism in in our government or whatever it well we need it to further the human race the way we're supposed to like that'd be the natural fallout of of this idea right but i believe the question is do we have institutionalized racism so it's okay if humans are racist we just can't have an institution that supports it Pretty much would probably be the argument because then they would make the, the argument that I just made, which is you can't legislate. 
right. racism, so to speak. So we're not trying to necessarily eliminate it there. But as a quote-unquote civilized society, we shouldn't have it. Wow. I don't know why we shouldn't have it. Right. Those are some mental gymnastics that you're... There are. And the reason I say I don't know why we shouldn't have it is because I think it needs to be rooted in a deeper ethic. Mm-hmm. It does. You know, if we're... If we are an uncreated species that just came about by random mutation and by accident, and then several other human beings derived from this primordial uh, ancient ancestor, if we will, Mm -hmm. and we've just been competing with each other for resources and the group that is the the smartest and the, the most fit to survive is the one who achieves superiority and is able to push out other groups of people and take over lands and and, and have their way of life established as the primary cultural group, then why are we even talking about getting rid of racial ideas? Right. It wouldn't make sense unless we're trying to appeal to a higher ethic. And the only place that I can find that would be in scripture. Right. Like it's the only place that actually substantiates um, treating people fairly without favoritism, looking at people squarely the way that they are not based on this uh atheist i want to call it atheistic but i'm not sure if the guy was an atheist so i don't want to jump that far this non-biblical secularized idea of dividing up humanity not based on the way that scripture would do it right i mean because if we were going to be fair then if we would look, want to look at the world's greatest history book which for me i would agree with uh Truth unedited, this said this made the statement that the greatest history book in the world is the Bible. Okay. I'm like, that's where that's where you should start. All right. And that I agree hundred percent. That's where I would start. All right. Bible doesn't anywhere recognize colors. It basically recognizes three different types of people groups. Okay. You have a a chosen people group, which would be the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm that was designed to redeem all of humanity back to God, not just be its own chosen unique group to just stand and say, we're better than you. It wasn't a superior group. It was a chosen group. Right. Then you have the groups that have, that have rejected God, the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Then you have the church. Right. And three basic groups. I I do want to push back on this just for a second. Oh, okay. You said that the Bible doesn't recognize color. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember a story of a young melanin rich individual that was told in church that God didn't see races, right? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and it caused some, some Who's this individual that you're talking about? You. <laughs> <laughs> right. If I remember the story correctly though, it caused a little bit of contention within the church because you were like, God doesn't know that I'm black? Like how does he not know that? Yes. Well, to to give the people the story, I was in a small group. <laughs> And we were going through a book um, that was called uh, The Church in the New Testament by, by Kevin J. Connor. And one of the things that he mentioned in there was the fact that Paul said that there are basically three different classifications of people that God recognizes, Jew, Gentile, and the church. And at that point, I got irritated. <laughs> uh, I got irritated with Paul, and I got irritated with, the, with God Okay, at, at the same time. Right. Okay, I'm irritated with Paul because how do I know that this is actually what God thinks? It's not just what you think, Paul. Okay. All right. And then I'm irritated with God because I'm like, yo, dude, seriously? You don't even recognize that I'm black? (laughs) 
like the folk in this country don't like black folk, but now here you're not even recognizing it. This is this is like the worst. And so I raised, uh, I took issue with the point, mm-hmm. and I spoke up, which I learned very quickly is not the best thing to do in a small group. <laughs> um, it's really what you're supposed to do in a small group. You are. Maybe just not that one. <laughs> no, you are. Um, and to their point, um, they they the the leader of the small group, uh, he really did try to take some time and, and talk with me about that. Um, but it made its way all the way up to senior pastor. And really the point that made its way up was the fact that I was challenging whether scripture was really right. Like, how do I know that that wasn't just Paul's opinion? Okay. Which then means if it is just Paul's opinion, it's not inspiration. It wasn't inspired by God. And we're just interjecting human opinion into this. And that could go on throughout scripture if you endorse that idea. Right. Which means we got some problems. Yep. It's a dangerous thought. It's a dangerous thought. So we got to slow down, Spears boy, and see (laughs) what you really think. Is that what you think about scripture? But we never really got to the issue that I had with that particular thing. They were really dealing with, do I think scripture's inerrant? Gotcha. And that's why it flew all the way up. But I hate the fact that it flew up all the way to the senior pastor where I'm getting phone calls from. Like, yo, what's this I hear about you questioning whether I was like, wow. (laughs) In all fairness, from that perspective, if you're wondering is if the Bible is accurate and inerrant, yeah, they they should have questioned me on that. Okay. That that was fine. But dealing with this whole racial perspective, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Right. So I I will say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the Bible does recognize the Bible and then by extension, God. Mm-hmm. If that's even by extension, um, recognizes color, but doesn't distinguish. Yeah, because I think there if is, we're gonna do if we're if we're gonna be I don't want to say word perfect, but if we're gonna be careful with our words, let me not say that it doesn't recognize it. It's it doesn't emphasize it. Right. It's not the primary classification, and while it may record color, it's not the primary distinctive difference. Right. So like Simon of Cyrene, the guy who helped Jesus carry the cross, it records that he was a, a dark man. Is that the one that it records as being a dark man? Yeah. Oh. I need you to understand how dope we are, man. We even have to help God out from time to time. I, I mean, granted, he's all the way down to the flesh and chenu and his back being being ripped out, but I see he's a little heavy for you, Lord. Let me go ahead and, and use my strong Negro muscles to help you out. Ah, just get this cross on up the hip. That's funny. Or they were enslaving black people to... To help out. <laughs> Either one of those. We're not sure. <laughs> we're, we're not sure how the Romans were, were doing things back then. Uh, but no, it, it records that. It, it records that fact. There are descriptions of people that are given. Uh, so, so God who makes people is obviously not blind to this. But when it comes to his delineation of people, it is not based on the idea of races and races being color groups. Right. He doesn't color code humanity. No, he does not. No, humanity is red. And it's red with sin. Yes. If you were going to place a real color on it. Right. There is no such thing as red, white, yellow, brown, and black. We are all varying degrees of melanin. Mm-hmm. That's it. Some of us are melanin rich. Some of us are melanin poor. Some of us are just middle class melanin. <laughs> middle class melanin. Yeah. That's all you, that's all you got. All right. Uh, and this these other delineations are satanically designed to obscure the authenticity of the word. Right. Your enemy does not want you seeing things from God's perspective. So he comes up with a false classification system and then ascribes psychological value to these false ideals that are set up 
and then creates conflict from that. Right. I mean, it's just like dressing like the planet of the apes. Mm -hmm. They're just dressing us up in the, in this makeup and saying this, this is what you are now. Now here's the crazy thing. If we were going to be more honest, we would have to stop referring to each other as black and white and all of this and actually refer to us based on our, I won't even say tribes, but our ancestral lineage. Right. Back to Noah. Because we all come from three brothers who had three wives. It's very important. <laughs> Especially in today's day and age. Right? Yeah. So all of humanity today, post-flood, really comes from one guy, which is Noah and, and then the sons that he had. So you're dealing with Shemites, Hamites, and Jeff, Jeffite, Jephosites or Jephites. Jephites sounds better. Jephites. Yeah. Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Right. That's all we, we really are. And to suggest that there were no quote unquote color variations, you know, melanin value distinctions or differences mm -hmm. um, between the brothers would probably be crazy. But I think that there was probably more variation even within one brother line than what we think. Right. I would agree. That's huge. Because most people aren't, are not going to account for that. Right. You know, if we're going to talk about the idea that, let's say, people of darker skin are poor or somehow they are inferior, run that back up the chain. Look at where people who have darker skin came from. They basically came from the son of Ham. Okay. I mean, not the son of Ham. <laughs> they came from Ham, the son of Noah. Right. right. They were Hamites. Mm -hmm. But if you look in that line, there were rulers all throughout that lineage. Yeah. Like uh, Nimrod, for, for, for one. First world ruler. Mizraim, yep. who his name actually means, uh, I believe it's Upper and Lower Egypt. Okay. That's where the Egyptians come from. Yeah. The, the Egyptians are huge. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it starts flying in the face of the idea of, are Egyptians lighter skin? They might actually more darker skin than what we think. Right. This is kind of where this idea that, um, quote, unquote, blacks were kings and, and rulers back in the ancient times where it comes from. Okay. Even the idea, I don't know if you if you knew this, but from what I'm told, the term uh, nigger comes from uh, a derivation of the term niggas, which is actually an old African word that stands for king or prince. Really? Yeah. Interesting. No, I, I had no idea. Right now, wouldn't that be ironic that the term that nowadays is used to to be a uh, a horrible, horrible word, derogatory word, mm -hmm. originally started as something that was actually very, very powerful. Seems like it would fit the narrative, though. When so done, much stuff ends up inverted. Absolutely. Blew my mind when I found that out. I will say as a disclaimer, don't go around calling your rebellion and rich friends niggas <laughs> with the U.S. or an A.S. None, just, none of us go work. Stay away from just, it. Yeah, just until Christ <laughs> redeems things, just stay away from that one. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but but we were talking about the Bible not recognizing color. Mm -hmm. If you look in Revelation, it doesn't talk about blacks and whites being reunited. It talks about tribes, nations, peoples mm -hmm. being united. Right. That's how it sees that's the way it looks at humanity because we all came from one being. Right. No, not just Noah. We, you can run that back up all the way up to Adam. 
Yeah. You following me? Mm-hmm. We didn't. I gotcha. From, we didn't come from this ancestral uh, evolutionary evolutionary ancestor that we have divided. And this is important even when it comes to today's understanding of humanity. I found out that the term Homo sapien does not apply to all mankind. Really? Yeah. Just in line with this same div- division of humanity, it applies more towards white folks. Interesting. Because so what's the terminology for non-white folks? <laughs> Love the way you said that. <laughs> um, they say that, the like the Negro, they say it came from... Uh, Homo negrosis. Right. I don't know what the Latin delineation would be. <laughs> that's that's, so that's hilarious. No, but they say that they it, they came from um, apes and and I'm trying to think of what that large sorry I'm trying to think what that large taxonomical label is for the apes and all of that. But they say that's where they descended from, which is a different evolutionary line than the than the Homo sapiens. So it's considered a subclass of Homo sapien, or not a subclass, but sub in as sub in the sense of it is underneath, but not sub in the sense that it's derivative of. Okay, does that, that make sense. sense? Yeah, never knew that until I was doing some research. That's frustrating. It is. This is where a lot of this type of stuff can go. So, getting back to the question at hand, you know, do I think that? Uh, there's such thing as systemic racism. Oh yeah, or institutionalized I, racism. I did ask you a question. You did. It was a while ago. You know how we get to talking and you know pontificating and just communicating with each other. I know anybody's listening is like, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> that was like 32 minutes ago. I, I apologize. We just got a little carried away in the studio. It's, a, it's um, just a really good answer. That's what it is. I, I'll take that one. <laughs> uh, but to, to answer that, I'm not sure if there's institutionalized racism but I definitely think that there is agendized oppression. Okay. I like that. And I think that's, that's an indisputable fact. I mean, there are easily, there, there are things that we could look at that show that the government institution had active agendas in play to oppress different segments of the population. Okay. What's one? Uh, you can take Rick, Richard Nixon and, the the heroin epidemic. Okay. You know, back in uh, 1968, I think, um, the Nixon White House basically had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. And uh, I believe there's a foreign, uh, there was a former Nixon uh, aide that actually went on record as saying, um, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Interesting. Right. That's a, that clearly shows you a political agenda there. Right. For sure. No law in the book that necessarily says it's illegal to be a hippie. No law in the book that says it's wrong to be black, but there is an agenda that utilizes the institutions in this country to actually oppress those particular two groups for political gain. That's fascinating. That's Nixon. You know, you can fast forward to to Reagan mm-hmm. and the crack epidemic. Okay. You know, crack crack for those who aren't aware of how the drug game works. Not that I know. <laughs> those those who, who aren't on the street. 
You, you have a thing called cocaine. Cocaine comes from the coca plant. And babies deal it on the corner, right? In Chappelle's world. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he was dealing cocaine. I thought he was dealing weed. Oh, maybe. I don't remember. Yes. Yeah. Um, that comes from the coca plant. And then you, you process it and you can get crack from cocaine. It's a different form. Okay. Of cocaine. I think regular cocaine is like a powder. Right. Um, which is different from heroin. Right. Heroin comes from the, it's an opioid that comes from the poppy seed. Okay. And crack comes, like I said, from the coca plant. It's kind of interesting. It is very different effects on the body. Right. And I'm not even going to touch the fact that the United States was in the highest opioid producing nation in the world for what? 20 years. Yeah. Something like that. Occupying Afghanistan. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's not like that probably had any effect whatsoever on the drug trade. No way at all. No, but crack cocaine did. So there was on the, the CIA, there was a CIA operat- operative that was on record actually pointing out that the CIA had an, a plans where they introduced crack cocaine into the black communities that not only destroyed the family unit further, but provided the financial fundings by way of drug drug sales to use that money to fund the Nicaraguan Nicaraguan Contras. And that became known as the uh, Iran Contra ordeal. This is when president Nixon, not Nixon, president Reagan got called on the record. Okay. And he was like that, that famous scene where he's like, well, you know, I don't remember but whether or not I can remember or not. The buck stops with me because I'm the president. Huh? He never got impeached. What did happen is uh, General Oliver North, I believe, had to go before Congress. I think he was the one who had to be the good soldier and fall on his sword. Right, to save the president. Absolutely. But again, what do you have? You have a government agency introducing oppression into certain communities and profiting off of that. In the meantime, you also have the Drug Enforcement Agency that's created, and they have to go on the war on drugs. So higher incarceration rates for people who get addicted to a drug that is introduced into the communities by way of their government. Yeah. No laws on the books. No. But an agenda. Right. An also, agenda is oppression. Right. It also reminds me of uh, Planned Parenthood. Okay. Because Margaret Sanger was a huge uh, eugenicist. Yes. And white supremacist. So she... Uh, was the what visionary behind Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. founder of Planned Parenthood. And she said that she wanted to fix the Negro problem. Do you know why she had such an issue with black people? Uh, I don't remember. My understanding was that her father crept out on her mother with a black woman and had a child. Interesting. Broke up their home, which fueled the hatred that Margaret had for blacks wow now when i hear a story like that (laughs) yeah not only does it take me back it kind of invigorates me in a certain sense okay the reason is i see satanic plans working their way through you know on one hand i want to be like who what type of person could come up with something like planned parenthood Mm -hmm. which really advocates for an abortion and destruction of the African-American community because that's really where it's aimed towards. Right. Right. There's nothing planned about parenthood from that organization, Planned Parenthood. Right. So what would fuel that person? And it'd be easy just to say, oh, well, they're satanic. They're demonically, you know, possessed. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's way, way deeper than that. If her father, working outside of the confines of Scripture, went and cheated on her mother and broke up his family and created seeds of hatred in his children because of his decision, that is a satanic agenda. Yeah. And then it plays its, itself out in a, on a generational scale because we are generationally related beings. No, that makes a lot of sense. It would. It seems so. Okay, I can see how it would feel what she did, and what she did was also satanic. Right. But it wasn't just isolated to her. Right. It's people copying to sin. Yep. That's the problem. And this is the fallout of it. Absolutely. Yeah, because she even called... She was the visionary behind the Negro Project, which was putting the Planned Parenthood buildings in minority neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. It was intentional for sure from the get from the onset. And since we're talking about Planned Parenthood, let's not forget the fact that Bill Gates' father was one of the key people in Planned Parenthood. Yep. It's it's crazy. It's like practice eugenics. Mm-hmm. And again, very, very recent in our History. Right. If you could even call it history. Then, of course, you've got LBJ and the welfare state. Yep. Which which is really, really big. You know, go ahead. I was just going to say they mentioned it in that clip that we just played. They did. Uh, But what strikes me, I had a person come up to me uh, and and ask me flat out. It was a really weird question. They're like, I don't get why African-Americans are pro-Democrats. Okay. Given the fact that Democrats haven't done much for you. I was like, well, I don't, I can't speak on behalf of all African-Americans. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm still in training. <laughs> I haven't reached that level yet uh, where I could do that. But as I thought about that point, I was like, it's not just cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, you get the same guy who signs the Civil Rights Act is also the same one that, that pushes the welfare. Mm. Same dude. Yeah. So you get an advancement on one hand. And you get what looks like an advancement, but it's actually an underhanded way to destroy your community. Right. Which he was very intent on. It's interesting. Right. And I think that, the as, as that video stated, this is a very big thing to understand, the fact that there was an attack on the African-American nuclear family mm-hmm. that was intentionally done by the state in order to disrupt a community to enact control over that community and one of the ways they achieved that was by marrying women and mar- marrying women to the state and using that association to empower women. Right. Now, take a step back. I see that as a test run for a much larger campaign. Okay. You're looking at me so confused. Like, what do you mean? Right, right. Tell me. Replace the African-American family with the American family. Okay. There's an attack right now on the strong nuclear family. By way of what? Women that are being empowered by the state. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Feminism. Right. That's even part of uh, the United Nations Agenda 2030. Right. So it worked really well. In the African-American community, we did our test run. Huh. Now let's see if we can push it a little bit further and expand it out. This is kind of why we we titled this episode, Racism, A Color-Coded War on Everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone's being affected by this. Everybody. 
you know, this whole thing right now that I hear a lot of where uh, people are talking about the war on the the white male in this country. Yep. And I'm like, it's, it's ironic to me. It's not the only person that there's a war on, mm-hmm. but it's normally pitched like they're the primary one that's getting assaulted right now. Right. That's not what I see. What I see is that Satan manipulated European males to plant seeds of oppression that they now are being found guilty of. How do you mean? Well, the idea is like, oh, the white man is oppressing us, right? Okay. Okay, probably not the ones that you're dealing with right now. Not in the way that, that we want to make that argument. Okay. However, if, if we just look at it in a broad sense term, mm-hmm. white males did a whole lot of oppressing in this country. And they benefited from it. Okay. Then there was a cultural shift. Oh, probably shouldn't be doing this. Okay, that's good. Right. <laughs> but you planted seeds and you reap what you sow. So now it's like the the culture has turned and now we're putting a spotlight on the on the people. I don't want to say the people. We're putting a spotlight on the actions of, of those people. Mm-hmm. And now they're having to kind of pay for it, but we're claiming, uh-oh, we're claiming there's a war. Okay. You follow me? Uh-huh. And the way I see it, Satan manipulated both sides. Okay, that makes sense. You know, on one hand, you profited off of off of oppressing others. You know, the white male, not every white male, but the white male. Mm-hmm. Profited off of oppression in this nation's past, but now is having to pay for that oppression in a sense of bad publicity. Okay, that makes sense. You wouldn't be able to say that if that type of oppression didn't occur in the past. And that type of oppression only occurred in the past due to sin. Right. Sin that Satan manipulated or exploited. That's probably a better word. Do you follow me? Uh-huh. So the concept that the white man is being singled out for a war, I'm like, not necessarily. You're just part of a larger war. Right. There's a war on everybody. There really is. There's a war on humanity. There's a war on males. There's a war on females. There's a war on the unborn. There's a war on the born. Yep. And what's coming, this is still a, what do they call that? This is still a practice run for the big time war that's coming. Yeah. And that's a war on a Christian. Yeah. I mean, the whole system is entirely corrupt. Exactly. And we know that we weren't founded on Christian principles. Now we were, I can never remember this term when we talk about it. We were settled, right? We right. were settled by people that held to Christian principles, but we weren't founded on them. Nah. So since that moment, there's been a slow veiled hand, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Al Pacino talks about in uh, The Devil's Advocate. Oh, being that hand up Mona Lisa's skirt? Yeah. Yeah. There's been a slow veiled hand to dismantle that Judeo-Christian framework that, that came over with the people that settled America. Absolutely. <clears throat> and the thing we've got to ask, and we've, we might've mentioned this on a previous episode, but as a nation that's progressively becoming less Christian, how are we also becoming less racist when Christianity is the antidote? That is the million dollar question. It's insane. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it is either. I think it's possible to become a little more refined. Yeah. Um, you could become nicer, but I, I, I don't think it's possible to have a solid, rational platform that justifies be, being less racist, that equally justifies being less Christian or less godly. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-mm. But it, it that, I would say, though, that racism isn't the root of our issue. Okay. A lot of times it's talked about as the, the core central problem. Right. Even with the, what is it, the 1619 
project mm-hmm. supposed to be the the very founding of the nation was based off of the first slave we ever had and that's you know inherent in everything that we do i don't think that racism is the root it, it, it'd be like asking if racism or if there is racism in america is like asking if murder was legal in nazi occupied poland i mean sure but is that really the biggest problem you know that we're dealing with mm. I, I i don't think so i'm not saying racism isn't important clearly mm-hmm. We're doing a podcast on it. Right. So it, it does need addressed. But the issues of our nation don't, don't, they don't stem from racism. Okay. What'd you say they stem from? Well, we've talked about a lot of this being an issue of the, the sinful nature of man. It's, it, I would say sin. I would agree. I think racism is a fruit of the corrupt system and not the root. I like how you said that. And uh, I mean, we know that our, our capital was our capital was even dedicated to all pagan gods, and the, and the Bible tells us that we can know a tree by its fruit. Mm-hmm. So let if, if we just look at America, we have things like rebellion, genocide, slavery, uh, revolution of greed, civil unrest, class warfare, lies, paganism, humanism, child trafficking, and and racism. Mm-hmm. So I think if we have all of these things, it, it, it would be a little bit myopic to say that racism is the cause of it. I think it's just the root of a bigger issue. I think you're, you're spot on, man, because really we've got an oligarchy of uh, you know, ancient Canaanite Kabbalists that basically run the synagogue of Satan. And that was responsible for really founding our country. Right. Know, and the fleeting morality that that organization creates, which even allows for things like, like pedophilia to be normalized, mm-hmm. you know, that polymorphic sexual perversity that's crept in into our culture. So sitting back and arguing that colonial hatred of minorities is at the core of the systemic issues of our society, I think is negligent. Yeah, I would agree. However, that's not what they're teaching in school though, right? Yeah, not at all. The stuff that the stuff that has come out that's happening in the public school system is alarming. You know, I don't even think there's a, a alarm is not even the right term. I mean, this is this is catastrophic. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm listening to posts where people are being asked just very basic questions. I saw a post yesterday where the vice president of the United States had to say, My name is Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and well, I don't know, she and whatever the was. She and she her. And her. Mm-hmm. Oh I, I I stopped listening to she. Uh, good afternoon. I want to welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. And um, Are you kidding me? You have to do this? Yeah. This is where we've, we've come as a nation? It's crazy. You wonder then <laughs> how we could have the type of crap that's going on in schools. I remember the thing I, I think I sent you last week where a uh, professor was in front of a, a congressman and he was asking her, okay, listen, can you just define what it means to be a woman? You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? 
many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, We it's, can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist I'm is denying that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that there, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think <laughs> so. You are denying that trans people exist, Thank and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this, where no, you, no, no, they're, they're told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence? We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a you, lot just I know. in this exchange. Absolutely extraordinary. Yep. She twisted this whole thing into an argument that he was he was being violent against those who were transgender. Right. And refused to define what it meant to be a woman. Because it was what? It was something about a woman's rights issue. Yeah. And okay, well, what is a woman? What could be any of these things? So then it's not relegated to just, you know, it, it got real, real confusing real fast. Right. And, and the <laughs> these are the, the, the outpinnings of a society hell-bent on turning its back on God. Like our society has been infiltrated with Marxist thinking. It has. What's and we, we've accepted it more and more. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, for whatever reason, I don't know why I didn't think to put this in the notes, but that Yuri Bezmenov, I think is his name. Yeah. He, he was the, um, the KGB defector that came over, and he's like, look, everything that's happening in your society is what we do um, to, to uh, enact ideological subversion on a people group. He's like, it's happening to all of you. Try getting an, an average American to believe that, like to really accept that idea, especially in a land where we think we think we think that we think independently. Right. And succinctly, not realizing that we think irrationally, collectively, and we think reactionary with our emotions. Yeah. We think emotionally. It's, it's a lot like um, you'll hear teenagers or whatever when they come out of high school they're like oh you know this idea of i have to be independent in this this uh, vain effort to be your own person ends up making you like everyone else in school who's also trying to do that exact same thing right yeah I, I think it's the same thing i mean you can see it when you come out of high school and look back on it hopefully we don't have to wait until the nation crashes to look back on it and be like yeah we were doing the same thing with thinking no, across the nation. No, because yeah. there's a real effort right now. I mean, and the fact that we think irrationally, we think reactively, the fact that we think emotionally, that's what makes the the presentation of like critical race theory such a major issue. Yeah, because it's being taught to people that don't have the skill set to evaluate it actively. Right. And it feels right. It does. It feels very right. Which is dangerous when you're taught to think with your emotions. That's mm -hmm. part of the satanic control matrix. Right. You know, so you, you've got 
critical race theory being pushed. You've got intersectionality that comes along with that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and being taught that there are multiple degrees of oppression that that hits uh, any individual in an oppressed group. It's right. not just one degree. You're probably oppressed from multiple angles. Right. And the more groups that you can be oppressed by gives you a, a higher standing in this in this particular field. Right. All this is Marxist conflict theory. Right. Now, this John Cooper blew my mind. This is one of the things that really I was like, okay, I got to pay attention to this guy. Okay. He wrote the book Awaken Alive to Truth. So he's the lead singer for the the band Skillet. Okay. He's got a podcast called Cooper Stuff. And he he has a very like just normal dining room kind of sit down talk to you. But the way that he explains moral relativism and conflict theory in his book kind of caused my brain to explode, right? Okay. So we're taught, we talk about the satanic control matrix and all these ideas that work to this ultimate end of, of Satan, new world order, antichrist, right? Yep. And how somehow humanity is going to be at war against God. It was one of the things that Missler was like, I don't get it. I get how you cannot believe that he's real, but how after realizing that he's real, do you actually form an army and a movement directly against him. Mm-hmm. The only way you can do that is moral relativism and, and CRT intersectionality and this conflict theory. So the moral relativism is important because there is no absolute moral truth, right? It's all dependent on something. It's relative to. Okay. Well, you plug that into conflict theory and Marxism, it's relative to those that are being oppressed. Those that are being oppressed have the moral high ground Versus whoever's oppressing them, right? Okay. So you get moral relativism and then you have this Marxist conflict theory. This is the framework and the only framework that I can imagine, and and John Cooper points it out in his book, that God becomes the villain. If you believe in moral relativism and conflict theory, God cannot be oppressed as creator of all things. If there's any oppression whatsoever then God becomes the villain that we have to go to war against because he's the one doing the oppressing. Okay, well, you got to explain that last part again. So we have, um, like, conflict theory. Yeah. Who, whoever's in power is oppressing whoever is uh, under that state. Okay, I get that. Well, but it doesn't, the, the one thing that, it, that the moral relativism, CRT and conflict theory doesn't, examine is why it doesn't matter why if you're up here and i'm down here then you're oppressing me or or at the very least you're guilty of me not being at your status okay that makes you the villain that makes whatever moral standard you have null and void because us down here have the moral high ground because we're being oppressed Mm. this forces god by nature of his character to always be the villain because by nature of his character of being self-sustained and uncreated cannot be oppressed by his creation. So when, when we he also can't elevate his creation to be equal with him, he can. So fascinating. Yeah. This is the only framework that actually makes God the villain. So whenever we come to the realization that we, that can, part's a little confusing. What do you mean? When he says the only framework that makes God the villain, because they think of other frameworks that makes him the villain. I mean, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's just that was kind of what threw me. Oh, okay. It's the only one. It's the only one that's made sense to me. Okay. I'll, I'll say that. And, and and the fact that we can see the seeds of this, or not even the seeds, the actual working of this in our education system. 
Okay. So if we ever come face to face with the reality, you know, oh, if science proves God or whatever, you know, come to that that point that Missler was like, okay, you come to the, his realization, how do you war against him? And I think this is how. Is this how or this why? I think this level of brainwashing and indoctrination is how you can get the people of the world to rally with you against a creator God, even recognizing him okay. as creator, if that makes you. sense. No, no, I, I get you. That's fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, awaken alive to truth. If nothing else, the way that he breaks that down, I was like, all right. I like th that. This is worth a... We might need to link that. Okay, I'll do that. Put it in the, the show notes. Yeah. Well, that raises the, the question then, who really profits from our racism? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't think it's just the corporations. I don't think it's just the government. No. I think the real profit on a human level would be the elite Illuminati bloodlines. And yep. by extension, the satanic overlords. Yeah. That's really who profits from it. Because it constantly places us in conflict with one another. And while we're fighting over imaginary, uh, lack of a better phrase, while we're fighting over imaginary offenses, mm -hmm. we're definitely not thinking about root causes and larger agendas. Right. At all. You know, if I hear somebody like that video that we listened to, on one hand, I was a little irritated with the idea, you know, why, why are blacks more, more, uh, was it more criminal? I don't think it was the exact phrase. It was the inference I took away from it. Why do they represent a higher number of prison population? No, that's because they commit more crimes per capita. And it was the lady that said something. It was a missing component. I don't think that's because of an inherent problem with black people. Mm -hmm. I was like, that little factor is huge. It is. The the guy didn't say that at all. He didn't. He he was a little bit harsh. Yeah, and I was like, if you miss that, because that re-levels the playing field. Without that, you can still look at things in a, in a disparaging factor. You know, blacks are more criminal than whites. And that's not necessarily true. Right. Because by extension, from a Christian perspective, that would be like saying blacks are more sinful than whites. Yeah, and that, nope, that's theologically unsound. Absolutely. Yep. For the fact that one, there aren't blacks or whites. And the right. fact that, <laughs> that all humanity has fallen short. Yeah. But it's so it's I mean, part of that falling short is thinking that someone else's sin is greater than your own. Right? Always. Like the level of hubris and pride that that's put into that. And then the things that extend from that, we're battling we're battling each other. Mm -hmm. And not realizing that we're being manipulated on a on a night nightly basis. Right. What is it? The, the shaking the jar analogy. Have you heard that? No. If you put white and red ants, now this isn't red. This is just the color of the ant. I'm okay. not, I'm not creating. I haven't seen a white ant before. Did I say white? Yeah. Black and red ants. My bad. I just want you to know, not all ants look the same. Okay. <laughs> so I just want you to understand that. Anyway, the analogy is if you put black ants and red ants in a jar, they won't attack each other. Okay. If you shake the jar, because it's such a, a, a violent, upsetting uh, stimulus, the only thing they have in the jar to fight with are the other colored ants. And they think that's what the problem is. So instantly the black ants and the red ants start killing each other. Really? Because you shook the jar. That's fascinating. I never, never knew that. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard about that experiment. But that 
is that says a lot. Yeah. Especially if you take into account the Tavistock approach of culture shocks. Yeah. That's what that would have the the equivalent effect of doing. Right. And, and fracturing the mind. And that's exactly what happened. You can look and I, I, evidence of this and not just racial issues, but every major um, social catastrophe that we have in America, you can see that it pits one side against the other. And that's just the Illuminati bloodlines shaking the jar and getting us to war with each other instead of recognizing that there's a douchebag shaking the jar. Absolutely. And that's going to ultimately be turned into us warring against God. Right. That's to, where it's it's all headed to. to. Yep. And to bring in the false Christ and the new world order. Absolutely. All works on the same thing. Yeah. This is, this is a crazy idea. All color from all coming from a color cutter. <laughs> all coming Easy for from, you to say. I know, right? So that's not like Biden. <laughs> all, all coming from a color-coded war on everyone. Right. And it'd be easy to just look at this as, you know, whites versus blacks or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's it. There is hurdle after emotional hurdle that you really have to go over. You know, taking things personal, thinking like you listening to it and hearing that blacks are more criminal than whites you know, without certain distinction. And even with that, you, there's an emotional processing that has to come with that. And it, yeah. it, it would be really, really unfair to just present all of these things as an issue and really not sift through that and find meaning. Cause if we do that and we don't leave people with hope and we can't tie it to real world application, then we can talk forever. And all people are going to hear is this. You really don't want that. No, you don't. Now, you really want people to to be able to walk away with this understanding the 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 major question um, that's really before us today, which is really is is modern day racism just a lingering shadow of our bright colonial past? No, nope. It's it's not just the lingering shadow. It's actually an agendized campaign. You know, is it the result of systematic steps taken to weave oppression? into the fabric of American culture, ultimately playing into a darker hand. Absolutely. I think so for sure. Yeah. That's exactly what it's doing. And there's a reason for that. Like we just said a moment ago, that allows for us to be manipulated control on a, on a much more efficient manner while increasing the level of offense and chaos and dark energy that the spiritual entities around us feed on. Right. We need those offenses. We need the murders. We need the homicide. And same thing, murders, homicides. <laughs> you know, we need people addicted. Yeah. They're, as long as you're addicted, you're not a threat to the system. You know, we need people violating family members and those around them. That all creates chaos. It creates dark energy that these beings feed on. And as they feed on it, they get the energy necessary to continue building out this satanic control matrix until it's fully complete and the antichrist can be welcomed in. And then they can turn that into a war against Yahweh. Right. That's not what we want. Not at all. We, we've got to actively work against it because we can't just pretend that our world is as small as, as we want it to be like a little safe place where none of this happens to me. I mean, I got this, you know, that token black friend. Yeah that everybody likes to claim. <laughs> I mean, it's like the thing that gets us out of 
looking at ourselves. Right, right. It, racism is out there. <laughs> right. It's not just in here. No, I actually told someone one time, I said, listen, if you really want to know if you're if you're free of racism, look at who you're allowed to marry. Who is it you're welcoming to your family? Hmm. That shows you the degree of inclusivity and acceptance, if you want to, or exclusivity. That's interesting. Because a lot of people can say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not racist. I, I got that token motorcycle white boyfriend. Well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> that Those are too many words. I should have pauses in between there. <laughs> you know, I, I got that token motorcycle friend who's white. And, of course, I don't have no problem with white folks. Right. Okay, would you marry one? Ah, I, I just, you know, nothing against white people. I just prefer, you know, that, that beautiful melanin-rich chocolate. <laughs> you know, that's that's just what I like. You know, I mean, you do you, but for me, I just need somebody that can cook like my mama cooked. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what I need. Oh, okay, I hear. You. What about you? Oh, well, you know, I'm sorry. I just I just don't date blacks. Yeah, I'm not racist. I mean, I want you to understand. I got two black friends, Toby and McGuire, separate people. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. You know what I mean? Yeah, we all claim that. As a way to excuse it, because it's like racism's out there. It's not here. Right. And that's the real question that we have to look at. What's here? Is this a safe place or not? Right. Because people are walking around like they're in Kansas, but the truth really is. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence... Every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Pandora rules. you got to obey the rules. That's it. And rule number one is educate yourself. First things first, you got to know your war doctrine. And this is how you develop that strong mental aptitude that we're talking about, Jason. Mm -hmm. We know that scripture tells us that we are not a bunch of different races. That's, that's just a false idea. It's a false delineation of people groups. Right. Because the, the Bible tells us in Acts 17, 26, that he is made from one blood, every nation of men. Right. That, that's an important statement. Right. That should actually just squell the argument right there. Right. Done. Right. You got one blood. We all that's back to that voting thing. Show me black blood or show me white blood. Right. You and know, or or you can't say show me red blood because it's all red. <laughs> you know? But that should defeat the argument right there. It really should. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem to do that. No, because <laughs> one of the one of the most stubborn things to dissuade a mind of is a preconceived lie that, that's viewed as truth. Right. But it's not just it's not just a war of ideas because we also have an enemy beyond just corrupt systems. Mm -hmm. You know, Scripture warns us uh, that this enemy only wants to still kill and destroy us, mm -hmm. and th this is why any teachings outside of the Bible are actually dangerous, because the Bible also tells us in Second Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So we have to be leery of these ideas that sound really good. You know, we talked about CRT. We talked about intersectionality and conflict theory. They sound really good, and it looks like it might, you know, be the answer. And they feel even truer right. than they sound. 
but they're they're really from the mind of our enemy and our enemy only wants to still steal, kill and destroy us. So we have to be careful to not adopt those destructive ideologies. Well said. Well said. Thank you. But scripture also anticipates something. It anticipates that th- this division that we see. Okay. So it gives us a banner under some a banner that all of us can unite under, which is the love of God. Cuz scripture tells us in John 3:16 I know we've heard it a lot, but for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Mm. Not any particular color sections of the world, but the whole world. He loved the whole world. And it's under this banner that, that we can um, congregate under. Is that the right? We'll go with that. I think that works. I mean, it's sad because John three sixteen in the Western church seems like we're desensitized to it, right? Okay. Like we hear it all the time and we're like, yeah. Okay, it's on T-shirts, and we even have Austin 316. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it kind of loses its power and beauty, but it's it's really incredible because if God was able to remedy the chasm between sinful, corrupt, disgusting man and a God that is so perfect that even by his nature, he's beyond our existence, mm-hmm. if he can remedy those two things and he can um, – diminish the chasm between those those two extremes, that same unifying sacrifice, the same blood, provides ethnic reconciliation. Okay. And I think it does this because does this by it equalizes humanity because it doesn't elevate any particular expression of the human genetic code, right? Okay. It deals with all of them the same and applies the same precious treasure to every aspect of the human race is the life altering transformative power of the blood of Jesus. Wow. This resets the game and we all play at zero. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That takes all these, these differences, these nuances, these different, the whole color scheme, the kaleidoscope or whatever you want to look at. It resets it all, all from one blood and resets the game. So we play at zero. Hmm. I like that you said that because now I'm thinking if that wasn't the case, we need a whole bunch of different Jesus to account. Yeah. These different racial groups. You have to, you'd have to have the black Jesus in the, which I feel like I can't make that joke anymore, (laughs) 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 but yeah, you would have to, to, to account for all of that. If, if humanity wasn't of one blood. Right. I like that. That, that. Yeah. Sorry, I just pieced it all together. Yeah, that's what and I was doing while you were talking. Right, I was right. like, wow. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. And I think also by adopting and expressing the characteristics of God uh, that, that we read about in the Bible mm-hmm. gives us the tools to navigate an ethnically diverse landscape. You sent me a TikTok last night. Okay. That it talked about- I sent how, you a ton. I know you did. <laughs> one, <laughs> one of the hundreds of TikToks that I had to look at last night. It, it was the guy that was talking about how the Bible says that the word becomes flesh. Yeah. And another way that that happens is that as we absorb the truth that is the word and take it into ourselves, so that's another aspect of it becoming flesh. I don't know how close this is to heresy, but it's a, it's a nice sentiment. Right. Um, but I think it also shows the importance of being able to um, make it real. You know, it's easy to believe the Bible or think that it's a nice history book, but when you actually apply it, you know, we have these agendas to come against the the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is that so detrimental? 
Well, because it was the family and nations were designed to function a certain way. And the Bible lays that out. We were humans were made to interact a certain way and love each other a certain way. And the Bible has all of that. It's, it's in addition to the beauty of God's transformative power and his sacrifice and all of that on top of that, it also helps navigate every issue that we come up against as humans. And it also shows us that there, that the reason that we love one another is not because how we treated one another, where we came from or what we look like. The reason that we're supposed to deal with humanity with love is because we are all created in the image of God. That's found right in the Bible. Genesis 1, 27, God created mankind in his own image. Right. And it's that being created in the image that generates our value, not the amount of melanin that we have. Dude, that, uh, that was on point. Thanks. Absolutely on point. And that underlines the reason why you have to educate yourself. Because part of this war is a thought war. You know, part of this war is actually designed and changing the way people think. But once you educate yourself, you got to put things in action. The first thing you do is you don't cede any ground to your enemy. That's rule number two. Right. All right. Now, the biblical counteroffensive strike package is really a three-phase assault plan that where scripture tells us to expose, oppose, and depose. Right? Yep. Those are the things that we have to do. You have to expose. That's where Ephesians 5.11 tells us, don't have any fellowship with the works of darkness, but expose them. That means if there's racial thinking that's going on in your community, don't fellowship with that. If there's racial practices that are going on, don't get in line with that. Actually expose it. You got to have that. You got to have the balls <laughs> to actually stand up and say something. And it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not going to be cool because a lot of people are asleep at the switch and they have their, their mind locked on autopilot and they're going with the standard narrative. But you have to actually have those conversations where you're like, yo, this isn't right. And having the conversation is important, but it's only stage one. You know, second stage is you have to oppose these things. James 5, 7 tells us, subject ourselves to the authority of scripture and then use that authority to resist the devil. If you are like I was when I was in that small group, and you're not thinking the Bible <laughs> is something you can put all your faith in, then you got to work that out. Right. You got to come to the conclusion that the Bible is wholly adequate to adjust, address the concerns of humanity. And mm -hmm. when you get to that place, then you have to start standing on that. You have to stand on the authority of scripture. That is the way, the mechanism on a broad sense that you oppose the works of the enemy after you expose them. Then you got to tear them down. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 tells us, demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against what God has said to be true and keeps people from actually knowing him and knowing his truth. Yeah. Racism is real, but one of the hidden agendas that, that desires to exploit our sinful natures to further oppress God's people is buried underneath that. Right. And we have to be able to recognize that, expose it, and then start doing things necessary to dismantle that within our sphere of influence. You're not going to be able to dismantle on a global level. Right. But you start first with yourself, start with your group, start with your, you know, your family, start with those people close to you. That's where we break that stuff down. Right. I think that takes us to rule three. That's where we got to pray. Like it's all up to God, but we got to work like it's all up to us. Right. So I think some prayers that we could take into consideration for this. Uh, I think we could pray that God gives us a compassionate heart uh, with those are the, who are hurt by the system. Right, to, to share one another's burdens. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
because it's easy depending on your position in in this racial dispute that's happening like we said that racism isn't real but the damage that it causes is real Mm -hmm. so even if you've maybe not suffered any i think we need to have a heart and compassion for those who have been hurt by the system right i think we could pray uh that we learn to carry each other's burdens like i said not just sympathize or have compassion with but to help help each other through that hmm do you agree no i do i think that's a good point uh because some people are not necessarily sympathetic to the things that others have experienced right and again that takes us back to having some of those conversations you know getting getting into the muck and mire actually getting into the head space of another person understanding what maybe they've experienced which may be completely foreign to you Right. Maybe, you know, it was not your childhood. It was not your your high school upbringing. It was not your experience with a coach. It was not your experience with law enforcement. It wasn't your experience in the house. You had a great house, great childhood, great, you know, schooling. What You can't necessarily relate. It might take actually sitting down a moment and listening to another person's walk through life. Right. So that we can empathize with them. Now, I think that's a great point. And pray that God helps us with that. You know, help that, that God gives us the eyes to see beyond our own experiences, like you were saying. Right. Because it's easy, like, if... If you have a bad McDonald's by your house, this is a terrible example, mm-hmm. and you go there, your only experience with with McDonald's is bad. Right. So it doesn't matter if you experience a McDonald's in another place. You're like, mm, I know what McDonald's is all about. I, right. I don't mess with that. Right. So we we really have to be able to see beyond our own experience. But that doesn't apply to Taco Bell because all Taco Bells are bad. Yes, they are. <laughs> thank thank you for that. thank you for bringing it back up. <laughs> You cut uh, me real deep. Just <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll empathize with you. Oh, man. I think we can also pray that God changes our hearts to see humanity the way that he does. Okay. You know, we always have a tendency. We've got all the qualifiers, you know, whether it be how they treat us, money, language, color, where they're from, anything that we think gives humanity value. But he values us enough to give his son and he values us because we were made in his image. And I really think that if we begin to see other people uh, through that lens, that it'll change our dynamics and how we interact with them. No, I think that's well said. And I I, I wonder then, provided that's the prayer that's supposed to be changing our, our minds and our perspective, mm-hmm. what's some of the work that people could do? Well, I think uh, one thing you can do is try to bre- deprogram your mind to not see race recognize that just like the makeup artist in Planet of the Apes, we're literally just dressed up in those colors because it doesn't say anything about us. So when people say, I don't see color, is that what you mean? Um, Because I think that's kind of a misnomer and a cop-out. Yeah, it is. It's really funny. I had this, Michael W. Smith had this song a long time ago, said, why can't we all be colorblind? Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who he, he wasn't a Christian and he listened to the song and he's like, but wouldn't don't people that are colorblind still see black and white? And I was like, <gasps> wow, the whole song is garbage. Right. <laughs> the whole thing falls apart quick. Yeah, because I don't think the goal is to not see color. Right. I think the goal is really to deprogram the mind so that you don't see the, the secular psychological value associated with a false color coded classification system. Right. That's what we mean by quote unquote race. No, I would agree. You know, if you see a white person, you're not immediately thinking colonizer. Right. You know, right. you have that, that Wakanda <laughs> Tony in your, in your mind, that freaking colonizer. You know, if you see a black person, you're not looking and seeing criminal. Right. 
you know, if you see a person of Arab descent, you're not like terrorists. Yeah, those are very destructive. They are. You know, it's better to see someone like that, like a help desk agent, you know, or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you look at a black person, see, see an athlete or maybe a musician, you know, <laughs> something tells me this isn't any less racist. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's equally bad. <laughs> Yo, you see a white person, see someone that, that suffers this rhythmically challenged, you know? You got to find new things that you could equate this with. I don't think that one's new. No, none of this really works, does it? No, it doesn't. All right, we'll just have to deprogram our mind not to see race. Then. Right, not to see race. I think we should also seek to uh, uh, to build relationships, both personal and professional relationships with people that look different than us. I think that's a very good one. And I, I don't know what this says about me, but this reminded me of one of my first jobs was a uh, a bagger at Kroger. Okay. And we got a department head who's a real tall, I think I could say this, super dark individual. Okay. And I thought it was, I think he even had like an accent. I mean, this has been a, a little while ago. Okay. And I loved the... Man, for you to say somebody was real tall? Yeah. It said he was tall. He was tall. Yeah, wow. I remember looking up at him. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. And he had a real thick accent. But I loved the the dynamic change that happened because everyone else was white. Okay. I think that we had like a see. I hate using these terms again. I think we had a a typically melanin uh, wealthy individual, but he <laughs> he got he was in the shallow end of it. Okay. You know, but mostly everyone was just white there. Gotcha. So to have this very different character, different uh, linguistic patterns, you know, very different look. As a as a bagger, my first job, I thought it was phenomenal. Gotcha. I was like, "This is great. This is what like being in the world in the workforce is supposed to feel like." Because not everyone looks like me, right? I, that was really cool, and I think we should strive for those type of um, appreciations for the differences. I agree. Uh, I think we should train our mind to recognize the inherent value of human beings, and that it comes from the Creator and not the color of our skin. You know, we said that in. We mentioned that in prayer, but I, I also, I have a little bit of an issue with when we just, like when we say, oh, I'm working on it or I'm praying about it, but we don't do anything, mm -hmm. you know, to, to work on that. Right. And so, yes, pray about it, but we also got to do the work. You know, we have to interact differently. We have to choose to look at things differently. You know, we have to choose to filter our experiences through a different lens if we hope to to actually bring about a cognitive change. No, I agree. And I think if you're going to bring about that change, you got to be willing to pass it down to the next generation. Yes. Which means you got to encourage your children to develop friendships as well. And you got to recognize that some of those in some cases might even lead to romantic relationships. Uh, but you got to develop those, those friendships with people who look different than you. Yes. You've got to encourage that in your children. Be friends. I remember that there's this Facebook video of these two little kids running at each other, one black, one white. I sent it to you. Yeah. I was like, hey, was, they caught us. It was great. Right. These two <laughs> little kids, they just run up and they just hug each other. And it's just two friends. It's not white, black. Right. That's what you have to do. You have to encourage that. Because as soon as I saw that video, I was thinking, where are the parents? Are, are the parents cool like that? They're on opposite sides of the street. Right. Probably the <laughs> fence, too, looking over like, hey, will you please tell your kid? Stop hugging my kids so much. It's dinner time. Can you send them home? Right. We we, we got to go. I have to I, call you on Uber. <laughs> Do you have transportation? I doubt with the way that they embraced that was their family stance. But I hope I hope it wasn't. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes those friendships can develop like that. 
Um, but I think it's important to foster that in a family unit. Right. Actively encourage your kids to reach out to other ethnic groups. And 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 also, like you've got you have to take an active stance against the propaganda. So if you have a bad experience with a white person or you have a bad experience with a black person or your children do, if you're going to stop this from taking over our minds and our culture, you have to realize that the reason you had a bad experience was not because they were black, not because they were white. It's because they were a sinful human being. Right. That's I, that's the point. Yes. Good. I think the... Uh, final thing that people could do is take a look at some of the resources that were instrumental in putting this whole episode together. You know, um, I think we've got, um, truth unedited. Something we'll link where they did the history of races. Yes. The history, not of races, the history of nations, nations, very, very good piece. I think it's like 30 minutes or so, like 26. Okay. Definitely take a look at that. I mean, listen to it. Um, because those type of things really help focus, the, the mind and the perspective on where these things started and clears up some of the confusion on what we hear today. Right. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> I am not linking to that. I, I took a clip from that. I'm not responsible for everything else that was in there. All right. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, we, we would do a clip of the, um, the video or the, the, the question that debate? The debate, thank you. I okay. couldn't do, we'll, we'll put that on there. We'll link uh, John Cooper's book. We'll have some good stuff on there. Yeah. So if you're interested uh, and you were on a um, desktop-esque device, uh, you can go to truthfullyarmed.com, uh, click on the drop-down menu, podcast, and then show notes. And then from there, you can find the uh, air date of this episode, and we should have all that good stuff in there for you. It is a little bit easier on mobile, though, if you just look at whatever streaming service that you are listening to us from. In the description of the show, there should be a direct link to the show notes for this episode right there. Uh, if you can remember, some of these might be affiliate links, which means a small portion of it might come back to help support this podcast so we can keep it going. Nice. But here's the last thing you can do, Jason. Remind yourself what Scripture tells us, which is we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us, and we have a community of believers all over the world, many different colors, and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. Now, that's important. <laughs> I remember playing this game one time. Uh, I, I want to say it was Call of Duty. No, it wasn't Call of Duty. It was Medal of Honor. Okay. And I happened to be uh, embedded. They were playing the, the part of a Green Beret, Special Forces. And we happened to be embedded like on top of this mountain and we got to this outpost and the outpost blew up, like literally exploded. Okay. And so we recovering our senses, we all huddle up on the outpost and then the mountain began to just, it got infested with insurgents. Okay. And they're coming down. And I mean, we are fighting down to the last bullet and the guys basically say their goodbye to each other. You know, first we were asking for mags, you know, I'm out. You got another mag last mag, make it count. 30 rounds later, which goes quick. Right. I'm down. We're pulling sidearms. And I'm like, hey, guys, it's been an honor serving with you, man. But I think this is it. And I'm like, yeah, I think this is it. And the guys, the, the insurgents are getting closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden, this AH-64 Apache comes from behind us and lights up the entire mountain. <laughs> and I'm like, yes! 
that is the equivalent of you're not fighting alone. Because sometimes it feels like you're on an outpost. Sometimes it feels like you're stranded on a mountain mm-hmm. and you're the only one facing an army of insurgents, an army of people that completely disagree with you, do not like your way of life and think that you should be locked up for being insane, for believing what you believe. Right. And you have to engage that. But you also have to remember, you do have an army. You do have assets that are that are supporting you and yeah. not be afraid. Right. That's a really good point. I like that analogy. That's great. Well, thank you. Because it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to, to like... You have something to you can visualize, latch on to. Yeah, right, yeah, and feel it. Like, you're not alone like that. Right. I like, mean, I literally great. jumped up. I stopped shooting, and I was like, <laughs> yes! Like, I got the feeling of a brotherhood. Right. You know, at that point, you didn't care that that was a pilot and you were ground trooping. Who was better? Right. We just saved your life. Yeah. And we showed up because you messing with my boys on the ground. Right. And everybody started running and scurrying. He's like, no, come back. Come back. Festus, 30-millimeter right. hey, cannon. I thought you was bad. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I loved it. I love that. <clears throat> uh, one day in the future, though, we won't be fallen creatures. We won't have to battle those prejudices. We won't have to worry about the insurgents pouring over the top of the hill, pinning us down, running out of ammo. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have to worry about it. One day, our knowledge won't be limited to our experience. Mm-hmm. One day, we'll be able to escape the, the culture that's hell-bent on indoctrinating us into hate. One day we'll be with Jesus as one family, mm. which I cannot wait for. Me either. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. We still got to go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, you take fire, I expect you to give fire. I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay faithful, stay frosty, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.